All right, so let's get rolling. All right, well, up first tonight is John. John wrote in and said, Do you see something strangely amiss in the fact that three buildings collapsed at the World Trade Center at 9-11, when only two were even damaged by airplanes flying into them, and even the fires were not hot enough to melt steel? And the media seems afraid to come forward to discuss the details. That's from John. Well, hello, John. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. Can you hear me? So, uh, yeah, I can hear you fine. Um, when did you first start to get into the um, 9-11 stuff? Oh, it's probably been at least a year now. About a year. And how I've did you first come across it as a um, phenomenon? Uh, yes, I'm not even sure uh, how I uh, got on to it, but uh, I went further and further down the rabbit hole, as they say. Right. And um, how much time would you say you've spent on uh, on this topic? Well, probably 100 hours at least. And was there something in particular that uh, swayed your uh, your thinking in this way? Uh, well, there were a lot of uh, things that people could call a coincidence. Uh, but then uh, when you start looking at the physics and uh, evidence of... Uh, um, very small uh, iron particles, uh, little uh, spheres uh, that only come from molten metal. And uh, the side of molten metal pour pouring from the side of the building. And then uh, traces of uh, some, uh, well, what's been termed nanothermite. Uh, little uh, red particles that uh, look like they've been made up from a molecular level, which uh, a typical chemist couldn't do. Which uh, there's uh, some evidence that it might have come from a Lawrence Livermore Laboratory or Los Alamos, uh, the same place where the anthrax uh, that you're probably familiar with, if you remember, uh, was traced to. Now, sorry, just to interrupt, but this won't mean anything to people not in the know. Right. So, um, I mean, I, I some remember blank? some years ago looking into this uh, stuff, and we used to discuss it on the free domain radio message boards and so on. And uh, I, again, I'm, you know, not to put you exactly in the same category, but when it came to like people who have unusual ideas like Flat Earth and so on, I'm like, you know, <laughs> I'm sure that my ideas strike people as crazier or more unorthodox sometimes than things like flat earth or controlled demolition of the buildings uh, in um, on 9-11. But uh, the way that you're talking about it, somebody who's not in the know wouldn't be able to, I think, understand what it is that you're talking about. So I wonder if you could, yes. so the, the thermite issue, uh, I wonder if you can explain that to somebody who doesn't know okay. anything uh, about it. I just took uh, one year of high school and one year of college chemistry, so I'm no expert. Um, but when I was a child, I was able to mix gunpowder uh, quite easily. I could do it by sight without a measuring spoon. I could tell by the colors. And um, but and I could make thermite, I understand. But nanothermite is a different issue. Uh, apparently, it's made in uh, very, very thin layers, uh, which um, a typical chemist couldn't do. Uh, and there are reports that the United States government uh, has been experimenting and using uh, 
such things since about 1995 or so. Uh, thermite. Was I'm sorry, but I, I still so, sorry again. Just just for those who are not familiar with it, the fact that you say the words microthermite or the word microthermite, people don't know what that means. Are you? Is it the idea the, that uh, microthermite was nano. found? It's I'm nano, sorry. which what, what it nano. what it really uh, means that it's uh, made on a much much finer level. Uh, normal thermite would just be mixing powders together, and it was used for many years to weld railroad tracks. Uh, from about 1895 on, but this nanothermite uh, was not uh, invented until maybe 1995 or so, um, perhaps by only the United States military. And what does this have to do with 9-11? Uh, it uh, ha- has, uh, it, it can cut steel beams uh, in, you know, just one second. Uh, and, uh, it's very logical, I think, that uh, nanothermite was placed in those buildings. Uh, and most people shoot that down without really looking at very many details. But uh, when they consider things like the president's brother uh, was very high up in the company that did security at the World Trade Center and that the elevators were being repaired uh, for about a year before, and uh, dogs that smelled explosives were uh, kept out of the World Trade Center for the weeks leading up to 9-11. And uh, there was a uh, lockdown on the buildings where all the security was turned off uh, just before 9-11, where anybody could have come and gone with uh, explosives or uh, setting up uh, charges. so anyway, that's part of what's behind what I, where I'm coming from. And then just so the sorry, so of, sorry. Let me just make sure I understand. So, so the theory is that the um, uh, the building was detonated from the inside, and the evidence for it is this uh, nano stuff. Is that right? Uh, yes, and that the planes were uh, uh, just uh, something to uh, make it look logical to ninety nine percent of the people. Um, but there are uh, thousands of engineers and architects who say uh, those planes could not have brought the buildings down by themselves. And the buildings fell too fast. It uh, broke Newton's, a couple of Newton's uh, theories on uh, gravity, for instance, like a building cannot fall uh, in free fall when there's resistance underneath it. And right. pieces of the building were shot out Oh, and stuck and other buildings a couple hundred yards away, huge pieces of building were, of uh, the World Trade Center were stuck into other buildings like arrows. And uh, that doesn't look like a, a collapse. And of course, well, to, no to be steel fair, structure in history has sorry, collapsed from fire. Sorry, uh, make your last point again. I interrupted. I don't know if we've got a lag or something, but um, I, I don't mean to uh, interrupt okay. you, but I do need to have a space to speak from time to time. Uh, okay. Uh, no uh, steel building in history has ever had a total collapse uh, like the Twin Towers. And uh, if a person views it, uh, they'll actually see pieces flying out with uh, what supposedly has been measured 70 mile per hour uh, arrows flying through and sticking in other buildings oh, 200, 300 yards away. Uh, it does not look like a collapse like you might imagine from an earthquake. Very much looks like an explosion. 
conclusion. Right. Now, of course, this was fairly unprecedented in the history of architecture and engineering to have two uh, planes with a fairly significant amount of fuel flown into these skyscrapers. Uh, I don't know about the nanothermite. I mean, I, I, you know, when when I'm told stuff that I can't verify for myself, that's sort of counterintuitive. Uh, my general position is is skepticism as far as, you know, bits of the building flying out and embedding itself in other bits of building. Uh, I can certainly see that, you know, as something buckles, there's a huge amount of outward pressure that uh, forces things out. But again, I mean, I'm no engineer and I'm no architect and so on. Now, is the idea that there were people in the airplanes that flew into the World Trade Centers or is the idea that there were no people in those airplanes? Uh, well, there's different discussions, and I hate to speculate on it. There's pieces, uh, people as uh, famous as John Lear, the son of the uh, inventor of the Learjet, uh, who's got, you know, 20,000 hours or something flying. And he says there are no planes. And uh, there's some rationale what, no planes behind that. Well, there's people who definitely contend that, and they have quite a bit of evidence. Uh, Wait, who so say there were no planes in the Pennsylvania field, no planes in the Pentagon, and no planes that flew into well, the World Trade Center? Yeah, I wish I wish you had 100 hours to study this. Uh, yes, uh, I could go one by one. I mean, there's a, a lady in uh, Pennsylvania who actually, and she sounds very uh, real. I've seen her on video. She looks very, very much just like, you know, your mother might. Very honest, telling you what, describing something going over her car uh, that looked very much like a cruise missile. And then uh, plane parts eight miles apart, pieces of the plane, um, eight miles apart, which doesn't sound like it just nosedived into the ground. And there were, uh, the coroner said there was, he saw no reason to have a coroner there when he got there. There was not a drop of blood or not a sign of, of a body. There are just lots of little things that, didn't quite add up. But as far as the actual World, World Trade Center itself, one of the things that caught the attention of uh, quite a few uh, architects and engineers was Building 7, which the NIST report really just uh, ignored. Uh, building 7 was it would have been the tallest building in 33 of our states uh, if it had been there. It was uh, 47 stories high and several hundred yards from the World Trade Center towers one and two. And uh, they claim the government report, uh, which almost uh, ignores it completely, uh, but they do contend that the falling buildings one and two somehow lit it on fire. And the fire alone brought down this 47 story building that had a foot approximately the size of a football field. And it fell perfectly just like a control demolition from fire alone is what they're claiming. Uh, but one a big problem with that is, uh, if you don't mind me going on a little longer, uh, there was a man uh, called Barry Jennings who worked on the 23rd floor of that 47-story building alongside really, uh, Giuliani normally. Uh, but that on that particular day, uh, he got up there just after the first plane hit and uh, there was nobody there. There was uh, coffee steaming on the desk, sandwiches half eaten, and nobody was there. He got on the phone and uh, was told to get the hell out of the building. Uh, and th th what I'm saying right now is all on a video. You can actually watch Barry say this in his own words. He ran down the stairs with another man uh, named Hess, 
they got to about the eighth floor and there was a huge explosion. Uh, I believe the, the stairwell actually went out from under him and he uh, thought he was a goner. He thought he was dead, but eventually him and uh, his fellow uh, person leaving there uh, broke out a window with a fire extinguisher and a, uh, the fire trucks uh, said, you know, we'll get you down. And they started to uh, attempt to rescue him. But then the first building fell and uh, they all ran for it. And then a few minutes later, they came back and they were going to help him again. And then the second building fell. Well, uh, Barry, uh, Barry's testimony actually says that his building had these huge explosions before either of the other two towers fell, which contradicts the government. And then as Barry went down through the lobby of building number seven, uh, firefighters helped him out eventually. Uh, he said he was stepping over bodies, which weren't supposed to be there. Um, and then Barry uh, mysteriously died at a very young age. Uh, and I think it might have had something to do with him claiming that uh, the uh, buildings had multiple explosions before the uh, Twin Towers ever came down to damage it. So that's one issue there. Okay, and now we, we can't just keep going on and on, right? Because I'm sure as you're yeah, skeptical of the government story, skepticism does have some some validity. Let's start with the no planes theory. That yeah. seems very surprising to me because, of yeah. course, there were um, many, many witnesses, eyewitnesses, a wide variety of camera angles, um, yeah. planes that were missing, people who never came back down to the ground after going up in a plane. So the argument that there are no planes, it's a very that seems to argument. be like that. That's such an extraordinary claim that the burden of proof would have to be extraordinary because that would be a conspiracy not just of the U.S. government but of all the people who claim to have witnessed it and uh, I would, would would the argument be that the video footage itself was also faked and so on? Um, well, uh, yes, part of it is actually. Uh, just well, no, no, no. Part of it, part of well, it couldn't be faked. It would all have to be faked, right? Uh, well, uh, yes, but I believe you asked the, the video and then you're asking about eyewitnesses, two different things. Uh, the one of the shots that we all remember, I mean, I, I was there that day myself. You know, I I watched I thought I watched the second plane hitting the tower. Uh, but it's very interesting if you study it and most people don't bother studying it. I mean, they just assume that what they saw, what they think they saw happened. Uh, but if you look closely uh, at it again, you'll see a uh, a distant shot of the two towers with one of them on fire. Uh, and uh, they're panning the situation from five miles away from a helicopter. And uh, then they zoom in on the two towers, and a few seconds later, you see the plane hit the second tower. And a question that arises is, where was that plane in the shot when it was a wide angle? It's, it, it's not to be seen. Like, how did that, where did that plane come from? Also, the nose of that plane went all the way through the building and out the other side of the building. That's what it certainly appears like. And uh, an, an expert at uh, making videos, uh, I have some of that. I, well, I have a son in my family who's a video maker. But anyway, uh, 
uh, they can explain how that was the accident uh, when they were filming that. And you only saw it once on TV for a few seconds. And then when they came back and tried to show it again, I believe they it looks like they realized they made a big mistake showing that plane coming all the way through the building, which obviously would be impossible since the nose of an airplane is just hollow plastic. Uh, what they did is they put the CNN or the Fox News banner up uh, to hide it. So you could only see above that on a second later when you got to see it again for the last time. Uh, so it's very interesting how a jet plane could have gone all the way through the building. And then, well, uh, when sorry to interrupt, but uh, if um, and generally, you know, my particular thing is if you're trying to explain something extraordinary to someone. Yes. Just keep on going is very off putting. OK. Right. So not giving me a chance to speak or to rebut uh, is very off putting because it sounds kind of like you're only interested in your own thoughts and not in the response of anyone you're talking to. Yes, right. So if, when I'm trying exactly. to explain something really surprising to someone, I'll usually, well, what do you think? Or does this make any sense? Or, you know, because because if you just keep going, I don't really feel like I'm part of the conversation. I see. Like you yeah, haven't asked I... me once, what do you think or what are your thoughts about it or anything like that? And I'm just saying as a communicator, and that's kind of what I do. If you're explaining something really hard to accept and extraordinary to someone, you really do need to ask for their feedback. Okay, I'm not sure where to stop. If I could see you, you could raise a hand, perhaps. Uh, but that wait, is... you mean you don't know how to ask me what I think? <laughs> well, uh, uh, about everything I said, yes. And I know there's several paragraphs there. Well, you've brought on at least half a dozen, possibly a dozen things that are quite extraordinary claims, and haven't. I'm just pointing out it's, it's hard to have a conversation when you just keep going. Okay, yes. so the idea might be that explosive devices are put into the buildings, yes. and it would be a huge job to put explosive devices into these two buildings. You know, like 50,000 workers going in and out of the building. There are security systems and guards, uh, and um, that is quite a bit of, uh, of work to try and get that done with no, no one noticing anything that might be going uh, along now, it's true, as far as I understand it, that no tall steel frame building has collapsed before 9/11 due to fire. Now, due to fire is a bit of a misnomer because the major issue was not just, of course, the structural problems of two giant airplanes flying into the buildings, but also because um, this massive amount of jet fuel. And you know, I just know this when I, when I used to work uh, as a gold panner and prospect prospector up north after high school. We were in incredibly cold um, neighborhoods. You know, we were deep, deep in the woods. Like you could only fly a, a, a seaplane in to get there. And I was there in the middle of winter. It was getting to be like minus 30, minus 40. And we actually had to mix jet fuel in with our regular fuel just to make it warm enough in the uh, tents that we were in. So uh, I do know that, <laughs> at least from that standpoint, uh, jet fuel burns extremely, extremely hot. Um, there are other tall steel frame buildings that have fallen down since 9-11 in 2008. Um, this is from skeptic.com. A large part of the tall concrete reinforced steel architecture tower at the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands caught fire and thereafter had a very fast, nearly straight down collapse, mostly into its own footprint. Ga gravity increases the force of a falling object by a factor of 30 for a single collapsing floor and collapsing buildings have nowhere to go but straight down. Other types of steel frame structures have collapsed 
due to a fire. With regards to the freefall collapse of the Twin Towers, uh, it's not freefall. It was almost freefall. And um, 80,000 tons of structural steel did slow down the collapse of the Twin Towers to about two-thirds of free fall. And the core collapsed at about 40% of free fall coming down last. And of course, if it was controlled demolition, the core structures would be the ones that would be brought down first. And uh, the fact that the core, the stronger core columns came down last means that it would not at least be in accordance with the most fundamental rules of controlled demolition, which is to bring down the core and the stronger structures first. And uh, those, uh, again, I don't, you know, the back and forth, I don't think either of us are particularly competent, but as you present a particular perspective, I think it's important for people to see alternative perspectives uh, as well. Sure. Can I say a few words? Sure. Um, a kerosene is uh, is basically what jet fuel is, and I believe it burns a max of 1,400. And a little kerosene heater that you, people might have in their bedroom or their cabin burns at a maximum of 1,800. And uh, I've got a fire going right here behind me here. Like we've all had fires on our stove. And without uh, oxygen being sent in like a blast heater, a, a typical you know carbon-based fire won't burn hot enough won't come close to melting steel, which was seen coming out of those buildings. It takes about 27 or 800 degrees. Uh, so, and as far as the uh, center of that building, uh, in the video, you can actually see the antenna on the World Trade Center tower falling b- before the outside of the structure. It, you can actually see it going down several feet. And there's also places, I'm, I'm running on again, <laughs> But I think you did it a little bit also where you can actually see uh, when it pretty much all fall and there was still uh, a huge spike sticking in the air, one of the corners of the building. And if you just kept your eye on it, it seemed very, very clearly outlined, a very crisp outline. And then it just turned to dust as you looked at it. It didn't fall down. It didn't fall to the side. It just became a cloud and like blew away which is very suspicious also. And the temperatures for two or three months, I believe uh, the, the government reported temperatures of 1,400 degrees under the ground um, weeks and weeks after, the, and after millions of gallons of water had been poured on it, which was also a sign of, of a chemical like thermite, which has the oxygen uh, already in it, a little bit like a sparkler you could use on 4th of July. You can put it under water and it keeps going. So uh, anyway, you should be able to pile all the firewood you want in the World Trade Center and start that fire with gasoline. And uh, it should never have gotten hot enough to build, burn, put the building down. In fact, there's a there's a famous photograph that you can look there on your computer. Mike can probably bring it up for you. There's a lady. uh, I got her name here somewhere. She's standing. Her name is Edna Centron. She's standing in the hole that the airplane supposedly made, uh, and she's got blonde hair, and she looks, I mean, you could take that picture and transpose it to her standing on the beach. She seems pretty healthy, like it's not that hot of a fire. And uh, a fireman up there in the building actually said, uh, too isolated, uh, let me see, how did he put it? I've got his exact quote, but basically there's two isolated uh, little fires here, and two hoses will knock it down. That just doesn't quite compute how that building could come down after he said that within an hour and 
and uh, hundreds and hundreds of people heard multiple explosions. Should I stop for a minute? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so we're not really having much of a debate because you're putting stuff, I'm putting counter stuff and you're going on with uh, with other stuff. Yeah, I'm not um, sure. As far as the uh, nanothermites, I just want to read the rebuttal again. I yeah. don't know, but uh, yeah. so let's see here. Um, Niels Harrett, Stephen Jones, and other 9-11 controlled demolition theorists claim to have found nanothermite particles in dust samples from the World Trade Center. They made sure that the dust samples were untainted and used advanced instruments to measure what happened when these tiny red-grade chips were heated up. Thermites re -temp reach temperatures of about 4,500 degrees and have their own oxygen supply when they burn, so they can burn underwater. Uh, these guys should have heated up the chips in a nitrogen or argon atmosphere to eliminate the possibility that regular hydrocarbons were burning. They also failed to take the carbon-based products out of the mix, so what we may well be seeing is some kind of carbon-based product burning in oxygen. They compared the sudden energy spike of their burning chips with the spikes of known nanothermites and found that their chips ignited at about 150 degrees Celsius, lower than the known nanothermites, and the energy released was off between their chips and the nanothermites by a factor at least uh, of two, yet they called this a match for nanothermite. Attempts to independently replicate this experiment have been dismal. Mark Basile, who appeared in the acknowledgments of the original study, burned the chips in air, replicating the error of the original experiment and not even measuring the energy released. A chemist named Frederick Henry Couanier got another dust sample from the original experimenters and wrote... Eventually, the presence of nanothermite could not be confirmed. The R.J. Lee company did a 2003 study on the dust and didn't find thermitic material. And again, these are just counterpoints to the arguments put forward that I think are important for at least my listeners to, um, to get a hold of. Uh, yes, uh, I believe the nanothermite by uh, Neil Herrett was actually put in a scientific journal for peer review. And uh, from what I've heard, there's no peer review that have debunked it. Um, and I've seen the little, you know, I've seen it on film, obviously. I wasn't there, but I've seen the little red ships lit, and I've seen them. And they certainly uh, go off. Some people tried to claim they were uh, paint, uh, which was obviously nonsense. Uh, uh, I believe it took uh, 430 Fahrenheit for it to go off, but it uh, it did. Uh, and, uh, if you take, uh, there's just a lot of just, uh, you might say circumstantial evidence. Um, those buildings were reduced to just fine powder. The powder was so fine, um, uh, that it was just, uh, people who've recorded it just couldn't understand it. They'd never seen anything like it. Uh, just a few other little things about the airplane, uh, the airplane, uh, the, that flew into the North Tower was supposed to be a United Airlines plane. Well, the engine that was on the street there, um, you can see photographs of it. It, it was an engine that uh, United Airlines, that plane would never have used. And right, also there was a, a passport of a, of a terrorist there, supposedly. Uh, did he roll down the window on the airplane and throw that out and then the black boxes were so damaged they couldn't even read them or find them, and yet there's a passport. It doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me. And the wrong engine, uh, and that was Lear who actually, who's you know, pretty uh, pretty uh, respected pilot, telling you that the uh, it just couldn't have been. In fact, he'll actually tell you that there were no planes.
Okay. Um, so, I mean, obviously, it's a bit of a hole with no bottom to go into all of the physical evidence that may or may not be there. And most of it's hearsay. And of course, a lot of the physical evidence has been destroyed by having the structures and their remnants hauled off and, and tossed out uh, um, in New Jersey. I think they were. This, it's all it's all gone. Right. I mean, as far as I mean. It, so if the argument is that there were no planes, that's an extraordinary claim. And yes, the burden of proof would have to be extraordinarily high for yeah. something like that, of course, as you know. And yeah. um, if, if the argument is that the planes were drones, then, of course, the challenge is what happened to the hundreds and hundreds of people who never came back home after getting on these planes. Um, yes. And so that becomes uh, a bit of a challenge, uh, to say the least, as well. If um, the planes were hijacked but flown in to the World Trade Center, but there was a controlled demolition, that also becomes somewhat problematic. Who are you going to find to fly that suicide mission and, uh, and so on? And the bigger, I guess the bigger question is, what is it for? Why would this be undertaken by a government? But governments grow on their own anyway. <laughs> I mean, we can see this well, under the Obama presidency, well, right? Governments just keep growing and keep growing. They usually, and usually because they're out there in the Middle East uh, poking these hornet's nests of discontented radicals, uh, you just keep doing that. And sooner or later, you are going to, um, uh, you are going to get some kind of blowback. Uh, the fact that it's this kind of a, a, a attack on uh, civilian targets is consistent with other uh, Al-Qaeda and Mujahideen targets. The fact that, that there did seem to be plans for this uh, um, in um, certain Al-Qaeda cells uh, in the Middle East and so on. It becomes a challenge that gets increasingly difficult. Uh, and, you know, these kinds of things, if basically what you're accusing the government is, of is uh, an unbelievable crime. And the burden for proof in criminal matters is like 95 or more percent. In civil matters, it's like 50, 50, 51, 49. But the burden of proof, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, in in your mind, my friend, do you feel that this has been proven as uh, valid as a government conspiracy, there were no planes or whatever. Do you feel that it's been proven beyond a reasonable doubt? Or do you think that these are just interesting questions to be asked for which we don't have any conclusive uh, or final say? Well, uh, I don't really have any credentials myself. Um, but I, uh, I think I uh, have a pretty reasonable mind. Uh, I've uh, been, I was able to retire with 10 children and send them all through college. And uh, I did that uh, at a very young age. Uh, and I own a business that gives me a seven-figure income, and I haven't worked for, you know, 40 years. Um, PNAC, have you heard of PNAC? It's the uh, Project for a New American Century. And yes. It was PNAC. And on 9-11-2000, just exactly a year before 9-11, uh, it was a, a group of men, uh, Wolfowitz was in there, and uh, Rumfeld, and... Uh, Quite a few others that ended up being in the Bush uh, administration. I believe 14 of them, actually. And uh, they wrote a document. It was the seminal report. It was the geostrategic uh, interest of the United States. And it called for regime uh, re regime change in Iraq. Uh, but let me just quote one sentence in it. It said the uh, process of revolutionary change is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. Uh, that's word for word. And I say that 9-11 was the new Pearl Harbor. 
this document called for increased military budget, preemptive strikes, unilateral force, and they were after vital resources. And I don't want to go on and on, um, but I, I could for an hour. Um, there was a general, I believe it was Wesley Clark, who spoke in front of the uh, Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. They invite dignitaries there. And he, uh, he was retiring about then, and he went into the Pentagon and uh, where you know he was welcomed. And one of the other generals said, come on in here, Wes, I want to show you something. And uh, he went in and uh, it ex was explained to him how the United States, uh, there had been a cabal at the top uh, of our government in the military industrial complex, you might say, uh, who was involved in taking over seven countries in the Middle East. And uh, that's a video you can actually watch on YouTube, the, the general t talking at the uh, club there in San Francisco, the Commonwealth Club. Um, but uh, I think it's very interesting that exactly a year later, uh, they got their new Pearl Harbor. And uh, the reason for it was the oil, of course, and their, they, their PNAC, their statement, uh, which they've been working on for years, but uh, Wolfowitz, I'm sure you're familiar with him, um, was very involved in Rumsfeld, and it called for United States dominance in the world for this next century, uh, and it kind of folds into a new world order, and uh, some of these fellows look, look like perhaps they wanted to be at the top of that new world order. So am I, am I safe in guessing that you not going to answer my question or perhaps you don't even rem oh, no, remember what it was. Sorry. Do you remember the question I asked by chance? Um, it's been so long. <laughs> right. Oh, oh, does oh, that, does that alarm you at all that I ask you a question and you go on, on some rambling proof, monologue right, and never address the question and don't even remember what it was? Was it the 95% proof question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but that's why I brought up the nanothermite early on and, uh, and what physicists have to say about those buildings collapse. Uh, because to me, there's no excuse for an explosive being in those buildings. And um, if there was an explosive there, how did it get there? And um, to me, the proof is that there was nanothermite there. And, and nanothermite is just a word, of course. It's thermite, and then they put the word nano in front of it because it's microscopic. But it's obviously something uh, that a typical chemist, and I'm talking about there wouldn't be one out of a thousand chemists that would even know where to start to make it from what I've read about it. Uh, it's something that took uh, probably millions of dollars to develop. And uh, the chemists that look at it and see that, that how thin the layers are, I wouldn't even know where to start. So who developed that if it wasn't the United States government? And I believe it was the United States Marine Corps even. I believe there's some leads back to them at back maybe 1996 or so that uh, that's something they were working on. But I don't... So if, if, if nanothermites, which burn at 4,500 degrees Celsius, were used to destroy almost every inch of the concrete floor... How could there be millions of sheets of paper floating out of the buildings? Because paper, of course, uh, as we know from the Ray Bradbury novel, ignites at 451 degrees. Yeah, that's another which interesting is, uh, thing. Uh, there know, were photographs. A hundred times less than the nanothermite temperature. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. There were photographs of cars. I believe it was 12 or 1400 cars 
that were basically melted. Um, it's very, very interesting. If you take a look at the cars, uh, that doesn't look like a, a collapse. Well, like what would ignite those cars? And then the same photos with those cars, some of them were upside down on top of other cars. There were papers on the ground that weren't burnt. Uh, like they'd burned out, they'd blown in the wind. There were trees also that still had their leaves on them. So it's very, very unusual. And uh, I don't even want to bring this up. I'm, I'm reluctant, but uh, there's other people like Judy Wood who uh, actually say there was some kind of a, a nuclear device of some kind used, and she has some evidence for that. Uh, but those cars, I mean, w you know, we've seen uh, buildings before that have come down, and uh, like in Haiti and earthquakes and all, and what would be a reason for 12 or 1400 cars being basically melted in very weird ways? I mean, uh, the uh, on some of them a little further away, you could just see all the door handles were melted off. And some of them, uh, were just grotesque. You wouldn't even recognize what kind of a car that was. Um, so how could that have been from a fire that was just on a few floors of a building? And um, there were first responders walking over the wreckage less than an hour after the tower collapsed. And if there's 4,500 degree heart of the sun thermo nanothermites being used, it seems unusual that they would be able to walk uh, over the wreckage less than an hour after the tower collapsed. And there's extensive video footage of that, as far as I understand it. Uh, yeah, I don't know, but there's also uh, videos there with some of the steel pieces four to five inches thick that are twisted around like pretzels. And, uh, you know, you probably know more about physics and history than I do. Um, but I know that uh, you could take a pile of firewood and stack it in those buildings or any amount of of furniture you wanted uh, in most of those buildings it was very re restricted what you could bring in but you could bring in I don't know 50 cords of firewood and put it up there and light it and uh, you would get an oxygen starved fire with black smoke which is what we saw and it would not be a hot enough fire to do much damage uh, it would it would it could not possibly get over half of the temperature that it would take to melt steel now, the NASA thermal images showed a maximum temperature in the, in the rubble of 1,400 degrees, while, of course, the yeah. argument is that there's much higher because of, you know, molten steel and, and thermo um, and nanothermites and so on. And I think that's a challenge as well. Also, the firefighters did pour literally millions of gallons of water uh, onto this uh, rubble. And, uh, of Absolutely. course, when water comes in contact with molten steel or iron, there's a fairly deadly and extensive set of thermal explosions that take place, and none of that uh, occurred. Well, uh, 1,400 degrees several weeks later, um, and there was nothing to burn, basically. In fact, the, the, the uh, governor, uh, Pataki, I believe his name was, stood there and said, like, where did the building go? Uh, there was no concrete left. It was just a pile of steel. It had all been blown all over the city. Um, the... And and there are uh, videos there that'll actually have telling you that the workmen had to change their boots. They were melting. Uh, and there were, and there, there were uh, firefighters there who said it looked like a, uh, um, like you ran a, a, uh, it's like there was molten iron just pouring. And you couldn't possibly get that from any fire that just has oxygen and wood, unless you're forcing the oxygen in like a cutting torch. You know, you've put pans on your stove. You could leave them all there all 
day long. And, and those fires actually have a mix of oxygen and, and gas. It's, there's an oxygen, like a, uh, a mixture under your burner on your stove. So that's a hotter fire than, than the fire that is the yellow flames you see on a bonfire that's out looking for oxygen. That's what the flames are doing. They're trying to complete combustion is what they're after. Right. Okay. So there's not a lot of rebuttals. I don't know if you've read a lot of, and it is tough, you know, when you have a particular thing that you're really into, reading the rebuttals can be, you know, a challenge, right? Um, but there are some rebuttals to some of these arguments, uh, even just at the physical level. And again, far from an expert myself, but the argument that you sort of made that they, they, they said, well, we're not going to get the kind of growth in government power that we want if we don't have some kind of disaster that will occur. Well, yeah, I mean, governments have always been willing to exploit particular disasters in order to expand their power. And it's hard to imagine something like the Patriot Act uh, or the Department of Homeland Security being able to be summoned into existence without something like 9-11. But just because somebody profits or the government profits in terms of its, the, its, its power from a disaster like this is not necessarily proof that the government engineered that disaster. I mean, directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is not provable, um, but you, you mentioned profit. Uh, Larry Silverstein had $14 million invested, and I believe he came out with $4.5 billion. Um, and he, uh, I don't really, I probably shouldn't get into this Saudi, the Saudi and the uh, Israeli connections, but uh, there are a lot of them. Insider trading was a very okay, big issue. Okay, but hang issue. on, hang on a sec. Yeah, so so people profited from it. The thing, and that just because somebody profits from it doesn't mean, you know, yeah. if 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 uh, if, uh, if a building is on fire and uh, I don't know, I grab a television from it, doesn't mean that I set the fire. It means I'm sort of profiting a- from the disaster. But yeah, but you have me, said, uh, John, that it's not provable, right? Well, um, some of this you I think could have been, except that. I think the United States government covered things up. I don't think it was an accident. That, no, no, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. You said it's not provable. And, and I respect you for that. I mean, I think that's a reasonable uh, thing to say, that these, these possibilities, they're not, there's no smoking gun. It's not provable, right? Um, the government took away that debris. They had over, what, 140 truckloads. Okay, I, I'm not, look, I'm just, I get that. But you said it's not provable. Yeah. And, and I'm not trying to, corner you on that that's a word that you said and so well, yeah, i guess my I question know. is maybe yes, it is still provable maybe it's it not provable still. at the moment well yeah insider trading um was another issue you may have been aware of this but um never in history had there been so many puts on american airlines and united airlines it's like it was unbelievable uh people made many, many millions of dollars betting against those airlines just that day, more than it ever happened before. And how do you know that? Uh, because uh, we have the exact numbers on that. How do you have the uh, exact numbers on that? How, how do United, people have the exact number of these puts? Well, what they had here was uh, there was 4,744 puts on United Airlines. How, how do people know that? I've worked in a trading company, SEC, and generally this stuff is SEC, kept pretty private. I think the SEC was willing to say that, and they also said American Airlines had 4,516, but they only had, uh, United had 396 calls, uh, and that was okay, 250. So, I, don't know, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I'm pretty skeptical towards this kind of stuff, but let me put it to you this way. 
Yeah. You know how people say, I had a dream about a white cat jumping off a ladder last night. And the next thing, the next day, what happened was I saw a white cat jumping off a ladder. And people say like, ooh, dreams are foreshadowing. They predict the future and so on. And we always forget the number of dreams that we've had that don't come true. So my question is not, okay, so even if we accept that there were all these puts on, on the stock price, how many times are there puts on stock prices where this doesn't happen, right? So yeah, the fact that there were puts and that this does more. happen seems uh, it's important. to. I don't know if the data has been collected for that. Okay, your turn to catch your breath. Listen to this. And I'm, of course, I wasn't there, but the SEC did investigate this. There were 258 times the average puts. That means if there only normally been one, there was 258. Or if there's normally two, there's 516. So it wasn't even close. And uh, Raytheon uh, had six times the normal options trade. And the SEC, when they finally came out uh, with their report, um, they said they weren't really alarmed since no trades were traced to uh, terrorist suspects. Um, But obviously the SEC, and I guess I'm making an accusation, uh, had information. They had names of people who made those puts and made those uh, bets and uh, they never they destroyed that information uh, just like sorry the, who destroyed who destroyed what information the SEC the Security and Exchange Commission yeah no I know what the SEC is which information did they destroy oh uh, who bought those puts who made those puts why would the SEC destroy that information because I think they were told to by higher ups uh, maybe Bush Somebody high up. And how, uh, so, so, so there was no trace through to the people who made the trades, and that's because um, the, the higher-ups asked the places. SEC to destroy the information. Yeah, there were two ways it could be traced, I understood. And one place was, was through the banks, and uh, it became top secret. The people, they hired all these people that go gather the information and those people were told that it was totally uh they would go to jail if they disclosed any of the information they gave it to their bosses the bosses said it doesn't look interesting and they got rid of it uh and how why would they get rid of it if it's 258 times the average puts and only you know let me ask you this let me ask you this do you know because i mean you you claim to have some business uh, knowledge and experience which i of course accept john but do you know that um, what what happened immediately before these puts uh, from American Airlines? Uh, you mean like in the airline industry? No, just the the American airline, the American itself, American Airlines itself, not the well, industry well, as a whole. Let me put it this company. way: none of the other airlines uh, had any unusual trading. It was only United and American. Okay, so I'm guessing I'm guessing that's a no. So what happened is. The American puts followed the trading day after the company had released a major profit warning. No. And that's when you would expect that investors would would anticipate that the shares would fall. No. And United Airlines trade volumes were lower than the spikes that had occurred in March and April of that year. There was a spike of 8,072 in March where there was no imminent attack right afterwards. So, th- so uh, there were 8,072 puts in March. And 3150 puts in September. So 
you know, a little less than a, a third of the ones in September. So the American puts came right on after September. Americans said that there was a, um, a major profit warning. And we're not going to make as much money as we thought. And therefore, we would expect the share prices to fall. And therefore, investors will put the puts on. And the United Airlines had a spike of 8,072 puts in March and 31.50 in September. So um, again, it's really important to widen the scope and look at uh, the rest of it that is occurring and also what ratio these puts are relative to what else has occurred. And we'll put the sources to all of this, of course. I'm not sure where you're reading, but what the thing I'm reading here says on September 6th and 7th, United had 4,744 puts and American had 4,516. No other airlines had similar puts. The airline industry, in other words, was not affected, but those two airlines were, and it was 258 times the average puts. United fell 42% after the the planes hit, and American fell 39%. Right, and I just gave so some Bank explanations for this, right? Which I don't know if you heard or not. Right, and, and what was America it that I said about this? five-fold increase in puts, and Raytheon had uh, six times the normal options. In other words, Raytheon was going up six times normal. Right, because they hadn't just put out a giant profit warning. No, why would they go up six times just like that? Like, like because they had, because and they if work. you're interested in investing in airlines and one airline puts out a major profit warning saying we're not going to meet our targets, we're going to be way below our targets, then what you're going to do is take your money out of American or put puts on American and you're going to put your money into other airlines because you're – you know, uh, traders often work in industry-specific areas. So if one airline says we're just we're not going to make the kind of money we thought, then you're going to take your money out of the one airline and you're going to put it in another. But that was both United and American both went down drastically. Uh, they both had the puts just a few days before. And Raytheon went the other direction. Raytheon, why would anybody guess that there were going to be a lot of cruise missiles made, but it went up six times. That means if it was worth $5, it was all, all of a sudden worth 30. Why, why did it get all that options trade? Well, um, so here's American Airlines right before 9-11. This is the, what they said. Um, American Airlines notes poor economic conditions and falling demand for, for their services. Uh, that's 12.48 p.m. And 12.49 p.m., they say they're deferring jet purchases beyond firm orders. 12.47 p.m., they say that they're retiring five more 727 aircraft early. 12.48 p.m., they're going to retire the entire 727 fleet by the end of 2002. 12.46 p.m., they say uh, this is um, 9-7. So this is uh, the 7th of September. AMR sees Q3 loss considerably larger than Q2's loss. Uh, AMR anticipates significant loss in Q4. AMR says cutting 2001-2002 CapEx by nearly capital expenditures by nearly $1.2 billion. American Airlines feels squeeze of fuel prices and labor costs. American Airlines warns of wider losses. Uh, Analyst says airline stocks face at least another bad quarter. AMR down 3.4% at 30.08 following Q3 warning. Uh, 4.04 p.m., Boeing stock rating cut over commercial growth. And so the fact that people are shorting American airline stock during the spate of bad news is not uh, 
not wildly out of the of the bounds. And the idea that this is somehow significant evidence of a massive government conspiracy to murder thousands of its own citizens with ways that are very hard to do. Like if if you wanted to create some sort of panic or some sort of, uh, I mean, there's tons of other stuff you could do that would be far less traceable. So I'm, you know, again, I'm just pointing out some of the counter factual things because you seem to be like very certain. And the fact that you're not bringing up anything counter to it and incorporating it uh, means that you're heavily invested in this narrative that you're putting forward about, you know, the government doing all of this stuff and making all this this going on. I'm sorry. Why well, I've looked, I've looked for rebuttals. I did not find that one. I'll thank you for the one you just gave me. I have not found it. Uh, maybe you can come up to a rebuttal to this next one. Are you ready? Um, there's a bunch of pilots. There's, you know, there's pilots for 9/11 Truth, but uh, these are mostly pilots. Well, in fact, one of them who actually flew both of those airplanes that supposedly crashed into the uh, towers one and two. Uh, he has said that he could not possibly have done that himself, and he didn't think the plane could either. Uh, it's not as easy as it looks, and uh, he explains that. And what, he uh, says it's physically impossible for the plane to have flowed into the Trade Center? Um, well, he's actually uh, saying that at those speeds, and, and if they were the planes, they were su- – su- well, he, he all he says is that he couldn't have done it. But there are other people who actually uh, – who said – that the planes would have come apart. They, they, they were way over their maximum speed and, and uh, banking, and they would, there's no way they could have done it. In fact, they, an engineer from Boeing, they got a, an engineer from Boeing to say that. They, in fact, it, the, the person was laughing at Boeing and said, no, it couldn't do that. Um, but the, the person who actually fly, who flew both of those planes said he could not have done that, and he had 20 or 30 years experience and uh, another pilot who had, I don't know, 20, 30 years of experience, got a bunch of his buddies together and they got in a simulator and in a simulator, um, I think they were given 10 tries each. And uh, it was not an easy thing to do. In fact, by the time the plane leveled off uh, down low, I think they were getting maybe eight or nine G's, which uh, they kind of laughed about like you'd likely to pass out. Uh, and then if you take that same uh, sort of information and take it to the Pentagon, uh, they just laugh at how could a pilot possibly level off, uh, come down from, uh, gosh, he was coming down at an unbelievable rate and making a, oh, a 270 or larger turn uh, banking and uh, skimmed across the grass, three or four feet off the grass without tearing up the grass and hitting the building like that. Uh, Oh, you mean the Pentagon one, right? Yeah, at, yeah, at the Pentagon. Uh, they just say there's just absolutely no way. Um, did, they, did they really laugh? Uh, yeah, they laughed. Like they giggled about the murder of 3,000 people and the destruction of well, the Trade they Center. They found this that. funny? You, know, you can have Michael turn on the video of, uh, of Lear. It's real easy to find. And uh, one of them actually says it's BS. I mean, that's... They don't tell you what BS stands for, but I think I know. And uh, they say there's no way that a plane or a pilot could do that. I mean, and that's if you had 20 years experience. And these guys were ones who had almost no experience. Uh, they wouldn't even rent them a small two-engine plane at some airport, you know, a few weeks before. So how did they manage 
and they weren't quivering in their boots or anything. These planes supposedly just were smooth as can be and just knew right where they were going. But these experienced pilots say that you just barely touched that control uh, and that plane, uh, it's not a little Piper Cub or a little Cherokee. It's, these are big planes and there's a reason why they have two pilots sitting there. And, and, and on these terrorists, supposedly, these guys had almost no training and there would just be one of them who um, at one point at a school, they were called dumb and dumber. They couldn't pass the test. On small planes, they ever had troubles. So how did they get so into those buildings? So it was a very, it was a, it, it was an incompetent self-generated terrorist attack. Are they saying then that because this is impossible, these people, these pilots claim that it's impossible? Are they saying then that there were no planes? Are we sort of back to there? Well, there, well, there's different people that say different things. No, no, and but, the, but these guys, that, if they're saying that the flight is impossible, they must say that there are yes. there were no planes, right? Uh, Lear says there were no planes. And other okay, ones, so if there were no uh, planes, other ones claim hang on, that it's a clearly the hang on, hang on. Let's, let's try and make this a planes. back and forth conversation. Okay, just just okay, for a moment. So if there were no planes, the planes that took off from the ground clearly did not land again, right? Uh, well, maybe uh, there was one that supposedly might have landed in Cleveland, and people were escorted escorted into a NASA building. And, and uh, we don't know what happened. Some people claim that those people were gassed in the air. Some some people also say that those phone calls that were supposedly made don't make any sense. Uh, like you could not use a cell phone at those uh, elevations back then. And uh, a couple of the stewardesses that supposedly had the uh, back of your seat phones who made calls. Um, one of them is saying something like three of her fellow uh airline employees had been stabbed and you can hear her talking as clearly as can be. Um, but there's nobody screaming. You don't hear any background noise. And she doesn't sound like a person whose uh, friends were just stabbed. She doesn't sound like a person. And this is what we're hanging on. There are no planes. Well, she no, doesn't no, sound I like a person who was off, just but I don't stabbed. Know when to stop. Um, the, the, uh, lady who was on the Pentagon flight, whose husband was the, uh, the top attorney in the country, what do you call him? Uh, the attorney general? On the, uh, Zachariah was the, brought to trial. And during that trial, they proved that her phone call that he, uh, they claimed was made was never made. The phone company says there was never a connection. So this is back to, so the, the government, um, Okay, let me just, I just want to make sure I sort of understand the, the process here. So the, air, the, the aircraft take off. Now, are the pilots there in on this? Because, of course, the pilots, I don't know if they could, I doubt they could remotely control the plane, certainly back then. So the pilots would have been in on it. The pilots would have diverted the path and landed the plane somewhere else. Is that right? And would radar operators not have noticed this? Uh, <laughs> I'm not very good at ex explaining all this, uh, but uh, I have a friend who works in the control tower here uh, locally at Sacramento. Um, yeah, there were ways that uh, planes could, uh, like if you could make circles within circles, uh, they could, uh, one plane could fool you, like it could go off one way and another plane could have taken its place. 
Uh, but some other interesting issues there on those phone calls. Oh, but hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah. So another plane would have taken its place, but the planes were tracked from takeoff. And after their courses were diverted, they were tracked to to New York, right, to, to the trade center. So the so one plane is diverted, another plane slides into its place. The pilots, of course, are never heard from again. So the planes land somewhere, and are the pilots themselves pulled off and, and murdered at some remote location? Um, some theories say that the people were gassed. Okay, so everyone's like, this has been an emergency landing. Please come into this airline chamber named Zyklon B and then yeah, they gas yeah. them and they dispose of the bodies maybe, and maybe they dispose of right the plane. In, maybe gas right in the airplane. Oh, they and might have fed the gas right into the airplane. Is that right? One of the top people in Bush's staff, I'm not sure if it was Philip Zelikow or uh, if it was Michael, uh, I think it was Zelikow. One of them actually uh, is a principal in a company whose uh, motto or one of their selling features actually says, we can hijack a hijack. Uh, they're into remote con- controlled planes. Well, yeah, but if, if, the, if somebody had taken over the, the airplane remotely, then wouldn't they, the pilots would have called and said, I'm no longer, like my airplane is not responding to my controls, right? Um, unless they were already incapacitated. Um, there's another whole aspect that I don't know if you're, uh, familiar with at all well and no, that is that they got they got messages from anyway okay so so they the, the planes take off they're remote controlled or something like that or there's some switcheroo plane and then the planes are landed somewhere and the people are gassed inside the planes the planes then are somehow disposed of right because of course if anyone had seen anything then um yeah that would have been the scoop of the of all history, at least in the West, right? So, so the bodies are disposed of, the airplane is disposed of, and either something does or does not fly into the World Trade Centers where huge amounts of nanothermites have been placed without anyone noticing, and that's what then brings down the towers. If there's no planes, everybody hallucinates a plane, and they have a huge amount of faked footage of the planes going in. I'm just, I'm just kind of questioning, John, at any point does this start to become unbelievable to you? Um, well, there's a lot of uh, things that it's really hard to explain to you uh, in a few minutes, but there really weren't that many witnesses that actually saw it live. Um, and there were a, a lot of other things that uh, uh, people who have died since have been suicided or committed suicide. Um, uh there's a lot of that. And let's, uh, uh, sorry, but so, so I guess, no, for you, no, it doesn't seem unbelievable. The number of people who would have to be in on this is truly extraordinary, right? Uh, I've wondered about that. Uh, it, it would have to be hundreds of people who would have yeah, to be Yeah, and a it. lot of people in, uh, uh, in military situations do what they're told. And uh, don't really know what's behind what they're doing. Uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, I have some skepticism about the military as a whole. But I think if you ask hundreds of military people to 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 operate in violation of posse comitatus on U.S. soil, to to capture control and gas hundreds of U.S. civilians, oh. and then to participate in the outright slaughter of thousands of U.S. civilians in the trade centers, and then to also uh, plan an attack on the very Pentagon. 
The idea that all of those soldiers would just be mindless drones who would say yes to that without a problem is inconceivable to me. No, I mean, they, they do. They are like, supposed to obey the Constitution more than their immediate superiors. And the idea that, you know, we've got Bradley Manning, we've got uh, the guy from, from WikiLeaks, Edward Snowden, although I know he's not military, he had security clearance. The idea that nobody would blow the whistle on any of this stuff at any time before or since, I mean, or would leave it if they were afraid for their lives or would leave it in a will with evidence uh, so that it could be, because, of course, lots of people have died, as you pointed out. Uh, since then, the idea that this secret would have been kept by hundreds, if not thousands of people over the entire course of the last 14 plus years, uh, I just find uh, there's Julian Assange, you know, also that none of this shows up in WikiLeaks. None of this shows up in any of the stuff that's been revealed by um, by Snowden, by Manning, by Assange, by any of the things that I mean, there's been a huge amount of hacks and revelations that have come out. I mean, we found out that that uh, the American government spying on its own people. That came out. Uh, we found out the American government is spying on European leaders. They had 67 German leaders uh, targeted with, with cell phone um, hacks and so on. So a huge amount of information has come out. And of course, uh, the idea that this has never come out by anyone anywhere, and also the enormous risk that people are taking. Absolutely, governments like more power. But anybody who was even tangentially involved in anything like this, if it came out, it would be a certain death penalty for them. Now, you know, people in government like more power, but they like to be alive to exercise that power. And if the U.S. government had been involved, if the C FBI, the CIA, the, 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 um, the military, if, if they had been involved in the outright slaughter uh, of thousands of domestic civilians, they would all get the death penalty. Like they would all just be taken out back and shot by outraged mobs if the uh, judicial system didn't get to them first. And so I think that the risk of something going wrong, the risk of relying on hundreds and hundreds of people to all keep the secret uh, and, and the, the idea that um, you could pull all of this off successfully, the government is not usually competent to build a road that lasts more than a couple of years and bridges tend to fall down with great regularity. The idea that hundreds of people facing certain death, if they were ever found out, would all keep the secret, yea, verily, beyond the grave, even to, outside of all of the... Uh, physical problems with this idea. It is an extraordinary story, and it does fly counter. Like, I can't think of any other conspiracy that would be that huge, that involved that many people that has lasted this long without a single whisper of revelation coming out. Um, I'm just telling you that. Now, but outside of that, outside of that, what do you feel is the value of pursuing this. I, I assume that you don't think that there's about to be some smoking gun that, that proves something beyond a shadow of a doubt. So there are, you know, in any highly scrutinized moment in history, there's about a bunch of inconsistent stuff that's going to come out and a bunch of people are going to have opinions about stuff uh, that uh, are not verifiable and there's going to be disagreements. The same thing happened, I'm sure, as you remember, since you're uh, not one of the younger audience members that we have. The same thing happened with JFK, the shooting of JFK, which also consumed decades of activist time and energy for what effect I can't quite figure out. So why why do you think this is important? What What is uh, the value of this for you? Let's forget about the truth or falsehood because you've made your case, I've made mine. But what is the value of this? Why does this motivate you so much? Uh, I think it uh, will shape the next century. And I think it's got a lot to do with the uh, probably two million people that have already died uh, over in the Middle East. Um, and it has to do with our, us losing our freedoms here. I think it's uh, the war on terror is being used uh, to take away our rights. 
And there but why wouldn't you, like, hang on, sorry to interrupt, why wouldn't you oppose the expansion of the war on terror without worrying about the 9-11 stuff? There's so much that could be done to push back I, against the government's uh, narrative no matter I what. I'm not sure from, from why you would need, view, uh, sorry, do you mind if I finish my sentence? Sure. Why would you need this particular aspect of unverifiable, extraordinary, unbelievable information to the vast majority of people? Why would you use that as your platform when there's so much other stuff that the government has perfectly admitted? You know, the government has perfectly admitted that they armed and trained uh, the origins of al-Qaeda. The government has perfectly admitted that most or a good proportion of the weapons that they gave to supposed uh, allies in various Middle East conflicts have ended up in the hands of ISIS. The government has perfectly admitted to complicity in a wide variety of international crimes, including the invasion of Iraq, which is a, in the international crime of aggression, which is about the worst one there is. So given that you already have a confession of mass murder from the government, why on earth would you need 9-11 to fight back against the expansions of government power through activism. Uh, I actually think that if this uh, gets uncovered, it could knock the feet out from under them. It could stop uh, what's going on right now. And right now, I believe they have pretty much a free hand. Uh, there were uh, quite a number, though, of suicides also involved in this. And the media has been very quiet. Like, how many people know that uh, that Bush's brother, uh, or by the way, Jeb Bush, uh, the one who's running for president right now is uh, on the list of the uh, PNAC originally. He's one of the original signers there. How many people know that Bush's brother uh, was connected with the security at the World Trade Center? And how many people would know that his maid uh, was coincidentally run over and killed by her only uh, by her own car? In, uh, but John, Bush's John, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're arguing against yourself. Why is that? Look. Let, let me ask you this. Yeah. I mean, you've probably seen the odd spy movie or two, right? Mm -hmm. What does the spy always do when the spy fears that he might be killed for some information he's supposed to keep secret? What is the one insurance policy that spy always puts in place to make sure he won't be killed? He'll talk out. He'll put it out there. Absolutely not. He'll say his Absolutely secrets. Not. No, because, yeah, well, so he says what, what the spy will do, yeah, what, what, and I've seen this in, I don't know, six million different movies and television shows. It's not some big, you know, state secret or some craft secret that, that's kept only by elite spies and J.J. Abrams. What spies always do is they say, I will keep this information secret, but if any accident befalls me, I have made arrangements that all of this information will become public. That is Spycraft 101. That's just, I've watched CSI twice and one born identity, right? So this is what people do. If they feel that they're being targeted in order to keep something secret, they will communicate to everyone who they think might even remotely be connected who, with whoever is targeting them. They will say, I have put this stuff in a lockbox with instructions which I've mailed to a wide variety of people to blah de blah de blah And if something happens to me, all of this information will be revealed. That is exactly what people do when they're in these kinds of situations. So if people are being targeted at a rate that seems suspicious, then this information would have come out for sure. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of just a little coincidence like Bush, uh, Bush's brother being connected to the security at the World Trade Center and Dulles Airport and Los Alamos? And I think that you're avoiding what I just said. His, 
Well, his or baby, his babysitter being run over in their driveway with her with her own car at Bush's house. Was the babysitter involved as well? Uh, I think she may have overheard something or knew something she shouldn't know. She'd been around the house a bit. So she may have overheard something and that's why she was run over. Perhaps. But there's quite a few of them. Uh, one of them just uh, oh, about 80 or 90 miles from where I live in California here. A guy named Philip Marshall wrote two books on 9-11 and he said he had a smoking gun. Uh, he was had a new book and it had to do with uh, his book, I think, had to do with Saudis uh, over in the Arizona uh, desert uh, uh, teaching these uh, supposed hijackers uh, how to fly large planes. And uh, his two teenage children and himself were all killed and his dog in his home right here in California. And they said it was suicide. Uh, but the neighbors said uh, they they didn't believe that. And uh, they saw what looked like a uh, government car leaving the scene. And uh, why would he have shot his dog and his two, two kids? And there's a story, you know, is, you know, divorce and stuff. But he had a book coming out that uh, looked like it would be pretty interesting. Uh, right. Well, I, you know, I don't know what to say. I'm just, all I can say is that if I'm ever accused of a crime, I hope like hell that you're not on the jury because the degree to which you stitch this stuff together to get a, a guilty verdict is, is sort of beyond my comprehension. Now, as far as, you know, the, the, my argument has been about 9-11. I don't care. Uh, I don't care to delve into it. It's, it's, a, it's a hole with no bottom. The evidence is almost gone. And there, you know, when I talk to people about it, that no rebuttals seem to matter, right? So I've put forward at least a half dozen rebuttals, which you simply change the subject and start talking about something else rather than grapple the rebuttal. So that is evidence of confirmation bias and a particular fetish for a narrative that uh, is impervious to counter evidence. So that does not help me to um, uh, to believe that you are skeptical of your own claims. You find this stuff compelling. You find, and, and I get this. You want to use this as a giant weapon to push back against the increasing police state in the United States. Um, it's not going to work. In fact, you could not be serving the government's agenda more uh, if you tried. And, and I'll tell you why. And I'm just going to rant to the end here. So I apologize for that. But um, uh, I do sort of it is my show and I do have to get my sort of perspective across. So I've just sure. taken my earphone out trying to rant, rant to the end. OK, so first of all, when you are saying surprising things, shocking things, unbelievable things, you need to connect with the fact that people find them unbelievable. Right. So. I mean, I put forward arguments which many people find very surprising. So I'll bring the experts in. Uh, I'll have conversations with them. Sometimes I'll try to ask them the tough questions. We'll look at the counter evidence. I check in with people as I'm talking to them to make sure I'm not just steamrolling and, and uh, boring them. So when you are communicating startling and shocking things to people, the degree of sensitivity that you need to have is extraordinary. And John, you don't have it. You don't even have anything close to it. So here's the problem with what it is that you're doing it and why I actually view you as betraying the cause of liberty rather than helping it. Because what you're doing is you're saying, I am skeptical and opposed to government power and I believe all this stuff, which I can't prove and I'm just going to keep repeating stuff I've heard and stuff that seems like, huh, coincidency, strangey stuff, no smoking gun. So what happens is people associate skepticism of government power 
with the kind of credulity that you're displaying for this unbelievable narrative of massive government corruption and conspiracy and so on, uh, where there's no evidence. There's no evidence. No evidence that would convict anyone in a court of law, not even close. And there's tons of counter evidence. So what you say when you put all this stuff forward, and why I'm saying that you could not be serving government power more if you tried, is you say, I am skeptical of government power, and let me display to you the quality of my thinking, and my skepticism, and my rigor, and my communication skills. So what happens is, people say, well, he's crazy about 9-11, therefore, if he's skeptical of government power and he's crazy, then being skeptical of government power must be crazy. And that is the problem because how you present yourself to people is absolutely essential. Because if you are not skeptical, if you are not bringing up the counter arguments, if you're not saying, well, it could be, but here's the counter arguments. And if you're not saying, oh, and by the way, there's stuff that the government has openly admitted that is far worse than 9-11. Far worse than 9-11. The government has admitted that this supposed slam dunk case for the weapons of mass destruction put forward by, I think it was George Tennant, head of the CIA at the time, the government has admitted that that did not exist. That the entire, entire justification for going into 9-11 did not exist. Sorry, for going into Iraq after 9-11 did not exist. The government has admitted that they trained, the, trained and armed the very people who they also admit was behind the 9-11 attacks. So, and, and this is just one of six million different things that you could talk about when it comes to governments breaking their own laws, government iniquity, government immorality. I fail to understand why the lives of 3,000 Americans are somehow, somehow infinitely more important than the lives of half a million to a million Iraqis or the half a million Iraqi children that are admittedly and have been openly admitted to have died as the result of the US-UK-led embargo of Iraq in the 1990s, where they refused to let goods in and out. So the government's already admitted to murdering half a million Iraqi children. The government has already admitted that the pretext for going into Iraq after 9-11 was false and that they didn't vet things properly. And the government has gone through so many things where they said, yeah, stone evil. I confess, I confess, I confess to crime after crime after crime after crime. So the idea that you need to somehow step around all of those confessions and go down this infinite twisty head rabbit hole of 9-11 conspiracy stuff is because you simply don't want to effect change against the government. You'd rather self-indulge your fantasies of paranoia and conspiracy theories rather than say, look, we already have a slam dunk case. We already have an open and shut case. We already have a confession. And compared to the crimes that the American government has already admitted to, good heavens, they, they overthrew the democratically elected government in Iran in 1953. They've been involved in regime change all over the world. South America, Central America, Noriega, who they persecuted, was originally their guy. They seem to have sold weapons of mass destruction to Saddam Hussein, who in the 90s was their guy. They put these people in power and then take, and this is not well, a guy, a neighbor was going to write a book about it and got run over by a tractor. No, this is stuff it's in the public record. It's known. It's examined. It's understood. It's perfectly accepted. And you don't need any conspiracy theories to convict the government of the crimes of the last half century where U.S. foreign policy has been responsible for tens of millions of deaths around the world. You do not need any conspiracy theories in order to convict the government of massive, brutal, 
multi-million dead crimes for which they have already admitted and for which there is nothing but evidence to confirm their admission. It's not like Stephen Avery, right? I mean, and so the idea that you need this in order to push back against the expansionist power state is ridiculous. You are discrediting the freedom movement by stepping around the confessed crimes of the state and trying to convict them on something that is like chasing Casper the Friendly Ghost in a tilt-a-whirl while strung up on acid and being beaten in the head by a monkey with sparklers in its fists, (laughs) to continue the metaphor. You don't need it. You don't need it. And it is discrediting to the liberty movement that you're stepping around these confessed crimes and trying to convict them on this grab bag of coincidences that you call some kind of slam dunk case. So that is my concern. You are actually working against what you think you're working for, in my argument and in my opinion. And I think I've put some pretty strong cases. And look, facts don't matter. Even if you were able to find some smoking gun, some irrefutable proof tomorrow, wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter fundamentally. And all I need to do with that is say Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter came out of the supposed hands-up-don't-shoot situation in Ferguson where Michael Brown was gunned down by Darren Wilson. Black Lives Movement came out of the hands-up-don't-shoot. Boy, if you want to see people lying about historical events, good heavens. (laughs) I mean, yeah, pilots say, I could never have done that. And uh, good friends said, oh, no, he was shot execution-style with his hands up in the air. And lots of people said, oh, yeah, I saw the same thing. And it's all lies. Now, has the Black Lives Movement disintegrated? Because the foundation incident that got brought them into being has been proven false? No. Doesn't matter. They'll just keep doing what they're doing and continue to take their government money and cause their trouble. And everybody will continue to nurse that acidic mummy's tit of white guilt and destroy their own civilization because they just don't want to stand up and tell the truth because they're afraid of racism. So the fact even that a founding narrative of something like Black Lives Matter has been proven entirely false and even Eric Holder's not racially neutral Justice Department could not find any civil charges or any charges of hate crimes or anything to bring against Darren Wilson means that even the people most desperate to find this cause couldn't find it. So I know I've said some strong things, but I, you know, was pretty patient trying to get the evidence from you. But um, I think you're working against the cause that you claim. And uh, I think you really need to revisit what it is that you're doing with the time that you have left in this world, because right now, pretty sure you're serving the enemy. Thank you very much for your call, though. It's always interesting and engaging. Let's move on to the next caller. All right. Well, up next is Marius. Marius wrote in and said, why do parents love their children? Since newborns, toddlers, and young kids in general aren't able to be virtuous for at least multiple months or years from birth on, are the positive emotions on the side of the parents falsely described as love and should rather be called bonding or preference of the gene set? Of course, this question is asked using Steph's definition of love as an involuntary response to virtue if one is him or herself virtuous. That's from Marius. Hi, Marius. Uh, Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you. And uh, thank you for all the good work you are doing. It's amazing. Thank you. I appreciate that. Right. So do you have more? I mean, I think the question is pretty clear, and I think I have a fairly reasonable answer. Uh, Do you want me to just launch into it, or is there anything you wanted to add? No, please go ahead. Okay. So asking the question, why do you love your infants, is sort of like asking, why do farmers have earth because you can't eat earth? 
And the reason farmers have earth is earth is what is necessary to grow crops, right? And so the reason that you bond with your child, your infant, your baby, the reason that you bond with your baby is because it is that bond which will grow the empathy and strength of character within that child that allows the child to grow up to be virtuous. You can't eat dirt and you can't love a baby, but dirt is necessary for the crops that you can eat and the bond with your baby is necessary in order to grow the child into a straight-spined avatar of virtue. Does that make any sense? Yes, this is a great analogy. But um, then itself, it's not love then, unless the, the child is grown up and can embody some virtue. No, it's, it's an attachment. So, so whatever right. animals can do cannot be part and parcel of philosophy, right? So keeping a beat can be done by monkeys and occasionally me. And so keeping a beat, like anything which animals can do cannot be part of moral philosophy fundamentally because for reasons we've gone into before. All animals, and the more case-selected, the, the, the better, but, but all animals that are case-selected uh, and uh, most mammals, of course, are significantly attached to their young. And uh, so it, it is an attachment that you have to your infant. You do not love your infant because the infant is displaying virtue. You have a biochemical attachment that has evolved over time that is incredibly powerful. And you fall in love with your child as the virtues that you're modeling and inculcating in your child are reflected back to you in your child's independently virtuous actions. So you fall in love with your child and that is what displaces the biological attachment. And, and uh, I mean, as a father, I mean, babies are are unbelievably, incredibly acute and wonderful and adorable with the big eyes and the fact that there's this thing that can find its nose with its hands that used to be curled up inside your wife. I mean, this is <laughs> completely mind-blowing uh, to, to see that. The absolute and unbelievable beauty of the human infant is uh, makes it a work of art second to none in the universe. So there is a wonder and an awe at the power and beauty of life that has come into being and through that process you fall in love with your child as they grow and become good yeah i was just going to ask uh, do you have any philosophical judgment of this this bonding or do you just accept this as biology i'm not sure what you mean by philosophical judgment hmm <laughs> I'm not sure either. Maybe so. <laughs> you don't. Oh, good. So I would hate to be clear about something you weren't clear about because that would be to be unclear. Right, right. Yeah, the question, maybe to phrase it in a different way, was if you think this is a good thing, if you have some, some moral judgment on it. Of course it's a good thing. Right. It's a, it's a good thing because life is human life is necessary but not sufficient for virtue. And so, of course, it's a good thing. I mean, if you didn't have any attachment to your baby, your baby would die. And so, yes, you get to keep your child alive. A human life gets to continue. And the degree to which you are attached to your child is significantly the degree to which I think they're going to have an easier time with empathy and uh, becoming moral. And it is you know, remarkable. I mean, um, my daughter the other day, we were meeting up with some friends And she was saying, oh, I wanted these other friends to come. But come to think of it, if my other friends came, then the children of these friends might feel a little bit left out because I have a longer relationship with these other people. And like she had this whole triangulation, n-dimensional, um, uh, Mr. Spock, three-dimensional chess thing going on as far as relationships go and how to make people feel good and so on. And um, I think that's pretty, pretty remarkable, the degree to which she was sensitive to her impact on other people based upon theoretical triangulations of future relationships. And I just thought that was um, 
that was just uh, fantastic. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the attachment is, is necessary. And the attachment, of course, if you didn't receive it as a child or as an infant yourself, the attachment is the result of a significant pursuit of self-knowledge and a healing of trauma and a healing of emotional distance and scar tissue and so on, so that your heart is available to your child. And um, so it is, uh, I think it is a mark of virtue to have worked, if you don't have it naturally, to have worked to have that um, amount of emotional availability and openness to your infant to have worked so that you have that capacity if you didn't get it naturally through your own history. That, I think, is a virtuous action. I think if you know that um, your child is coming into the house, there's going to be an infant crawling around, then you childproof your house, right? You, you cover up the electrical plugs, you you, you get stuff on the toilet so it doesn't open. Uh, you uh, you just make your, your – you get the little gates and barriers for the top of the stairs if you live in a two-story house so that they don't fall down the stairs. So you child-proof your house, and that's a, a good thing to do because, you know, <laughs> they're, they're not nearly as expendable as they used to be back in the Paleozoic era. And at the same time, you child-enable your heart, right? You infant-enable your heart, which is um, – that you have to be comfortable and to relish and to revel in the open-eyed, limpid, liquid pool, deep gaze of the infant, the wonder of them seeing this giant, <laughs> looming, moon-like manhead uh, coming up in their field of vision and so on. And you have to have that eye contact, which is essential for, I think, the growth of uh, empathy. Uh, you have to be sensitive to your baby's moods uh, so that you stimulate them to the point of happiness, but not to the point of stress uh, and all of this. And, um, you know, as my daughter says, that's fun. Too much of that, bit blood pressuring. It's <laughs> a good point to make. Remember. <laughs> and so, yeah, you, you, the, the virtue is in the parent uh, in, in readying their heart to be open to, to the needs and preferences uh, and personality of the child, which will be different for each child that you have. They're not photocopied and it's not environmental. Uh, the vast majority of personality is genetic or, or innate. And so um, having that kind of flexibility, I think, is really important. So there's virtue in preparing your heart for access uh, from an infant. Uh, and um, there's no virtue on the part of the infant, but that's how it transfers. What I mean, if you, sorry, if you're, if you're, sorry to interrupt, I just, I, I appeared to be finished, but I didn't, just before I forget the analogy as they come and go through my mind like sprinting ghosts on acid, but um, if you are a piano teacher, then the first time some kid sits down and plays piano, plays some scales or chopsticks or whatever, you don't cheer at the tears running down your face, right? But if you train that child to the point where they can do uh, a piano concert at Carnegie Hall and fill it to the roof, then you may be having tears rolling <laughs> down your face, right? So uh, it is, uh, but but you can't get there without the chopsticks, right? So the chopsticks is part of it, but it's not the culmination in that way. Yes. All right. This is a perfect answer. I was just going to ask if there are like uh, an average age where you can start to see some virtues mirroring back. Well, is it yeah, at about different? a year. Yeah, about a year to 16 months Uh, you, you children can uh, mirror, they can begin to have empathy. Um, I have somewhere a little video footage of my daughter. Um, I can't remember how old she was, uh, where she took some of the food that she loved and she fed me. Um, and but that's wonderful. I mean, that is a great, a great moment because she recognizes that I, ha I would like this food as well. And she still 
loves to share food that she loves with me, uh, which is great because I never do it with her. So, so uh, you can start to see that kind of kindness and empathy and virtue kicking in, uh, even as close. And there have been some uh, estimates that kids can start to do some pretty significant calculations of probability, even at sort of six, seven, and eight months. Uh, never, ever underestimate what your kids are capable of uh, when they're very young. I mean, that giant brain is the true glory of nature and the only one that will probably exist in the world or in the universe that we know of. Uh, and so, um, y- you know, learn to expect it very early and learn to admire it as soon as it shows up. And it shows up, it showed up a lot earlier than I, I thought it was going to. Right. Yeah, this is awesome. And I really look forward to read your book on parenting as it is finished. And yeah, it will be amazing. Thank you. I appreciate that, Mary. It's uh, very nice to chat with you and feel free to call back anytime. Yes. Is there a place for my second question or should I drop it off later? Um, well, what do you think? <laughs> I will leave it to your judgment. I would love to, to ask the question because it's a little bit more personal. Okay. All right, so I'm just going to read a short introduction. I'm starting off as a web podcast philosopher in German language, and I would love to get your advice. I want to do this full time one day and make a living out of it, teaching people how to think and educating them about important topics like you are doing with Freedom and Radio. Do you have any advice and thoughts? Uh, strap yourself in and get a helmet. <laughs> well, I think I think it's very important to have a, a social network around that uh, of people who care about you and who understand and appreciate and support what it is that you're doing. Uh, you, you cannot follow, you cannot change the world in isolation because you're going to need you're going to encounter hostility and you're going to encounter trolls and you're going to encounter people who don't like what you're doing and so on. Natural, if you're going to try and do good in the world, it's going to impact people and some people it's going to most people will impact positively, a few people negatively and so on. You need that support and people around you who love you and are 150 percent behind what it is that you do. I think that's important. The most important thing, though, fundamentally, is just any general business advice and. It's a business as well as a calling because, you know, a calling that can't feed itself starves to death in a corner. But uh, it's important to just really, really be sensitive to what it is that your audience wants. You know, I said this in the last show. Uh, there's tons of stuff that I'd love to do that um, is not where the audience is pulling me, right? The audience wants to talk about personal stuff and the audience wants to talk about uh, stuff that is different. For, I'd like to do really technical um, logic tree, syllogistical reasonings that that prove things and, and so on. And I haven't had a lot of time for that lately because there's been a bunch of other stuff that people, you know, they want, they want a lot of current events where you can see that, you know, we do a parenting video and it doesn't do uh, hugely. Um, uh, it doesn't do hugely well. And so, you know, we put out a video on parenting. We're lucky for it to get 25,000 views. And I yell something about the European migrant crisis uh, and it gets 600,000 views plus and so on. So recognize that part of it is going to be to really do the most that you can to change people, which is going to get generally the fewest views. And the other part of it is to invite them into a conversation by appealing to what it is that's most important to them at the moment. And so... um, we do a lot of stuff to draw people into a conversation about parenting. You know, I'll, I'll put on a show and make a lot of jokes and imitate uh, John Rawls talking about the redistribution of uh, the JJs. But uh, the, the point is that I want to get people into the show to talk about uh, parenting and virtue in their personal relationships and virtue that they can actually enact in their personal relationships. And I think that's the key. That to me is, that's the heart of the show. Now, the heart of the show for me may be different than the heart of the show for you. Uh, But the heart of the show is usually not what is going to draw people in at the front. 
because the heart of the show is where they have the most power, which is where they have the most anxiety. Because whatever you can change the most is going to be the most, the thing that threatens your relationships the most, your existing relationships. So it's not a bait and switch because I stand behind everything that I say uh, in, in my videos. I mean, if I make mistakes or make errors, I correct those. But, um, you know, for instance, I wanted to get, I've been desperate to get parenting, um, pra- best parenting practices into black communities, Trayvon Martin and um, George Zimmerman. The truth about Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman was a chance to expose probably two million people, a lot of whom were black, to the message of, of peaceful parenting. And um, I did a lot of research in order to make the case for peaceful parenting at the end. And it was like 99% research in order to get the 1%. That was 99% of the reason I did it. And so just recognizing that you have a core message that needs to be handled delicately that people are going to be a little alarmed about, like with me as the voluntary relationships uh, and the confrontation of your relationships with philosophical virtues. So, yeah, you want to put people, uh, put stuff out there that people are going to find engaging to, to, bring, in, to bring them into the mix. Uh, but there, sh- I think, needs to be a really a core, core message that's going to motivate you. Uh, and, and that's, to me, that always has to be stuff that's actionable that you can do in the world. For me, educating people about the free market, educating people about um, the variety of topics that, that I have done, the crusades and the truth about crime and so on, these are all important things. These are all important things, and I'm not going to pretend that they're not. But for me, the core message is which virtues can you bring to life and act upon in your world, right? And this is why I gave the, the John the Last Caller a bit of a hard time because these aren't things that he can act on. He can't go personally uncover this stuff about 9-11, and he can't broadcast it even if he could. And I guess if his theory is correct, he'd just get run over by a maid or whatever it was. And so... Find, find, find some core message that you are really passionate about. And if you want to use the one that I found, I'm certainly not going to object to that. The more the merrier. But um, something that is really core that is what you sail your ship by when the storms happen, right? Because, you know, there are times in, in the life of every philosopher, every thinker, every radical, every communicator, there are times when it's all joy, smooth sailing, the wind's at your back, the sun is beating overhead, and the birds are not crapping on your head. And the, 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 the fish are jumping into your <laughs> soup or whatever. Like there's times when it's smooth sailing, and then there's times where it's stormy, and it's a challenge. And you, you bring out your sextant, you bring out your, your GPS when you don't know where you're going, when the storms are confusing. And there's something that you're going to need in the storms of these lives. Uh, of these lives of changing the world because the world doesn't want to be changed the people who are at the bottom have got used to that a lot of times and the people at the top certainly don't want to change and the people don't want to be confronted with the immoralities they may either have done or have been unconsciously supporting because when you communicate virtue you create immorality in people's hearts because when you communicate something like spanking violates a non-aggression principle you turn someone from from someone who thinks that they're doing something right into someone who has to recognize they're doing something wrong. And most times, I shouldn't say most times, a lot of times, when you bring a moral argument to someone that paints them in a bad light, they think that you have created that immorality in them. In other words, you are to blame for the immorality that has been revealed in them, and they will often get angry at you and think that you're the immoral one because they wouldn't have been immoral if you had not made the argument that made it clear that what they were doing was wrong. And so there are times when topics overtake you 
against your will, but which the audience is hungry for. So for instance, uh, you know, do we like talking about Muslims week after week? Not really, but there's a migrant crisis. Uh, I don't like, uh, I'm kind of bored of race a lot of times, but race keeps coming, charging into the conversation. Um, IQ, uh, again, you know, done it, but it has to, it, it's something that needs, bears repeating as a way to really help people understand what is going on in the world. So there are times when you're tired of stuff, but you have to keep slogging on because that is what is most important to your audience. And uh, the audience, uh, in, in all voluntary enterprises, the audience rules. And um, this is why, you know, again, not to pick on John the first caller, but so I was pointing out to him that he's selling something called a theory. And like all salespeople, you can't just keep demonstrating your product if people's eyes are glazing over. You need to, uh, you know, figure out how best to get information across. Because all you're trying to do is you're trying to plant the seeds of virtue in the stony ground of other people's indifference and hostility. And that is a very, very tricky business. It's one thing to throw your, uh, to throw your uh, seeds into you know, earthy, loamy, Irish-style, potato-hungry uh, soil. But for the most part, people strenuously resist any redefinition of morality because it shakes them to the very core of their being to think that in pursuing virtue, they may have been, pursuing, uh, they may have been feeding vice. Uh, or in fighting vice, they may have, in fact, been fighting virtue. I mean, that is incredibly disorienting for, for, for people. And the more morally sensitive people are, the more they are drawn to talking about morality, but the higher the stakes of having any moral redefinition occur, shifting the ground under their feet. You know, if you design a bridge for 1G and suddenly you're on minus 20G, your bridge ain't going to do well other than as a fresco on the ceiling of the doomed cathedral of your own prior moral delusions. So it is a really, really uh, challenge. Uh, it's a huge challenge for people and the sensitivity that you can bring to bear. I have had some minor successes and some not so minor failures in my sensitivity in this area because I'm the kind of guy I welcome the redefinition of morality. You know, I went from Christian to atheist, well, I went from Christian to agnostic to atheist. I went from socialist to objectivist to anarchist. So I don't have a particular problem with moral redefinition because I can't think of anything I've done in my life that I've become an evil person for or have any sort of fundamental moral impugning that has occurred as a result of these sort of moral redefinitions. So I have a clean conscience and it's easy to walk through the world with a clean conscience and say, hey, let's just talk about ethics without realizing that just because you're immune to the landmines of moral redefinition, it doesn't mean that everyone else is too. And the reaction of other people to moral redefinitions has been more explosive than I would have imagined because it doesn't affect me. I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm like Superman and everyone, like the bullets are taking everyone down. And I'm like, these things are ticklish. Hook, hair, swirl, swirl, flex, pecs. So that, I think that aspect of things is, is really important to understand that if you are curious and empathetic and interested in morality, then you are somebody who's willing to explore things. And, and what happens is you feel like you're giving people a refreshing massage. You know, this is sort of what I've sort of come to think of it as. I'm like, oh man, I don't know if you've ever had a really, really good massage, but it is just like how to rejuvenate your body into <laughs> bland cocoa butter of relaxation. But you feel like you're giving people a massage and you're like, wow, I love a massage. Massage feels fantastic. But people feel like you're ripping out their internal organs and feeding them to the vultures of immorality. Like, so you, you think you're approaching people with a pill that's going to cure them, and they think that you're trying to stuff a poisonous snake down their throat. So just because you have a comfort with moral questioning and moral curiosity and moral redefinition, it is really important to have the empathy for the traumatized people whose conscience is not clean.
Uh, and that, again, this has been a mistake I have made repeatedly. I'm trying to make it slightly less repeatedly because, you know, self-knowledge and effect, being effective is good. And there are times, of course, where shocking the moral conscience of people is perfectly fine. Uh, and there are times where it's not. And I'm, you know, I'm still working on the, the balancing act between those two poles. But um, I think this is is the fundamental challenges that that I would suggest you try to be cognizant of as you go forward. So uh, you can take a few less battle scars than, than I was uh, forced to take, uh, not being sensitive enough to the degree with which um, me doing my dance is uh, fundamentally enraging those without legs. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, this was a lot of input. Um, as you mentioned in the beginning, the support, support of one's social circle, how do you deal with people who are kind of ambivalent or ignorant to your goals and to your mission? Oh, I don't. Okay. No, I, I don't. I mean, I, I can't. I can't do it. Like, you, you can't do a high-wire act when people are firing watermelons at your head. You can't. Or if they're taking away the safety underneath. Right? You, you can't work on math problems when people are screaming random numbers into your ear. If, if you are trying to do something truly extraordinary, in this world. And the redefinition of ethics is the most foundational and extraordinary, necessary, inevitable, and contentious revolution that is possible on this planet. People change political systems. It's nothing. Changing moral definitions is foundational. It is explosive. It is literally like changing physics for people. Mm. And so if there are people around you who are who have set their spears against the oncoming cavalry of your ambitions, you've got to clear them or they'll take down your horses and your ride will be over. There's no other possibility. There's no possibility of coexistence with ambition at scorn, with grand plans and petty sabotage. So if you have people around you who think you can't do it or it's not worth doing or it's stupid or it's a waste of time or it's immaterial or it's unimportant or it's vainglorious or it's megalomaniacal or blah, 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 blah. Well, you can stay with them and give up the most glorious Pegasus steed the world has ever known, which is the, the true joy and clarity of rational thought and the pursuit of evidence regardless of social convention. That is the most glorious tip of the mountain uh, uh, sky casting with Nietzsche uh, on the magic carpet rides of spelling things out that humanity doesn't want to see, but they can't tear their eyes away from the beautiful text in the sky. That is the most glorious thing that can be done. And I've been incredibly privileged for uh, over 10 years now to be doing that in the public sphere. And that is something that having skeptics around, you can't coexist with it. You, you, you can't. I don't, skeptics, I don't mean skeptics like people who tell you that they want, uh, you know, they, dis, they disagree with this aspect or there's information. Absolutely. Those people are essential. You need clear and rational feedback. But, you know, what, what has been colloquially called the, the Debbie Downers, or as a friend of mine used to call them, the ministers of doom and gloom from the kingdom of woe is me. <laughs> uh, those people who just want to live small. They want to live skeptical. They want to be mammals at the feet of dinosaurs wanting to live another day in the hopes that they won't get squished, those people cannot coexist with great ambitions. If you want a duet, and everything in life is a duet, and everyone is, is singing with you, if you want a duet, you can't have it with a tone-deaf person. You won't make them sound any better. They'll just make you sound bad. And so you, are, you have to assemble a choir of people who can sing if you want to make beautiful music. <laughs> 
and they all have to be committed and they all have to have great voices and they all have to have perfect pitch and they all have to have good timing and breath control and training, whatever you want to call it. And it's the same thing if you wish to do something extraordinary, like redefine the moral landscape of humankind, you cannot have people around you who don't believe that's possible or who genuinely believe that it's unimportant. Personalities are contagious and either you infect them and fill them with your ambitions or they infect you and weaken you. You know, there, there's no one who's got mono who wins the decathlon and uh, these people will bleed you dry and they will suck the very marrow out of your ambition. And they are the first line of defense of the planet. The planet that resists the redefinition of morality first sends what some writer has called the person from Pollock who simply distracts you and uh, doesn't want to talk about what it is that you're doing and pretends that it doesn't exist in order to hope to diminish and anesthetize your ambition so that you don't step onto the stage and redefine morality which fundamentally shifts power structures and often reverses them completely which is shocking to those at the bottom and uh, enraging and appalling to those at the top. And so the first line of defense, and I don't want to get into the whole line of defenses. If you are successful, then call back and we'll get into the next lines of defenses. But the first line of defense is to pretend that it's imp unimportant, immaterial, uh, impossible, and most importantly, to pretend that it doesn't exist. You know, like I, I had friends a year or two after I started this who never, ever asked me how it was going or what I was doing and never listened to any of my shows. Yeah, I can <laughs> add, relate. Had. <laughs> had friends <laughs> like that because they're simply... You, you cannot do this high wire act with people shooting the anesthetizing blow darts of indifference straight into your trembling jugular. You know, this is a strain. This is a challenge. This is work. This is hard at times. And uh, you need a soft place to fall. And uh, if people aren't there, you just hit the concrete. Right. Yes, with friends, I can totally relate. I have some people in my life who didn't talk to me one time about it. And when I tried to board it up, they just just didn't notice that I said something like, like it was even like this. So um, I know that I maybe have to move on from that. But then there are, it's tough because there are other people like my parents, for example, who aren't that directly against it, but they don't reflect the small fire I feel back to me. And they are saying things like, well, it's going to take a long time and it's going to be hard and so on. I don't know how to categorize this. So, Micah, if you're on on the line, I am. What do I say whenever I'm about to do something really challenging? What do I ask you? Am I going to do a good job, <laughs> Mike? Am I going to do a good job? <laughs> you don't say in quite that pitch or tone, but <laughs> well, that's how you hear it, isn't it? <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to tell you no, just to really, you know, no. <laughs> And of course, well, I say you you're going to kick ass. You like, gonna... <laughs> but that's the reason I ask. I've been, been doing this stuff for 33 years. Mm -hmm. I've been doing it in a public sphere for 10. Um, and I still ask people around me, am I going to do a good job? I still want to check. And um, that's important. You need the people around you who are going to believe in you. And it's not, you know, selfish. They're not like, you know, they're giving you foot massages and... and uh, putting the powder on your nose so you're not shiny under the TV lights or anything. Oh, I mean, need to prop up Steph's ego again before this event. Yeah, it's, you know? it's not a one-way. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, Mike and I, we support each other. My friends and I, my family and I, we support each other. It's not just one way. But the needs are different depending on, on particular contexts. So, Mike, is there anything you wanted to add for our fine listener? I think you pretty much nailed it, Steph. 
All right. So good luck. I hope I haven't driven you away from pursuing this arena, but uh, it, it's absolutely glorious. And there are times when it is mind-numbingly alarming. So, uh, but there, you know, few and far between for the most part. So, all right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marius. Take care. Take care. All right. Up next is Thomas. And Thomas wrote in, and he's got a few questions. But the first one on the list is about climate change. It says climate change is a huge topic nowadays. In all my university science classes, I have learned that it is one hundred percent fact that humans are a large cause of climate change, and that this will be a problem for our future children, etc. What do you say about that? And why is it that anyone who is skeptical is so aggressively shot down as a climate change denier? Yeah, what do you, what do you think? What do you think, Thomas? Oh, man, I'm really not sure. Um, I mean, I, I set this question in kind of a long time ago, um, and I've seen some videos where you talk about how it's almost kind of a religion. And, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not really sure why it's so aggressive, especially in the realm of science in which, you know, reason and evidence is supposed to trump everything. <clears throat> yeah, there are, there are times in human history when there are these kinds of... Um, sort of collective psychoses or, or manias, you know, there, there was a South Sea bubble where people invested in a bunch of nonsense hundreds of years ago. There was tulip mania in Amsterdam in, in Holland a couple of hundred years ago where people just became obsessed with tulips. There were the Salem witch trials. Uh, there were these supposed satanic rituals occurring in a bunch of daycares in the 80s and 90s. And there are these times where there are just these collective psychoses that are driven for a wide variety of reasons that do seem to be impervious to reason and evidence. And climate change currently is, it seems to me to have all the hallmarks of, of these characteristics. It, the fact is that models are not science. Like computer models are not science. That doesn't mean that they're irrelevant to science, but computer models must be predictive. And computer models have not been predictive of where the temperature has actually gone. So there's a bunch of challenges in that what they're modeled is, um, is, is not what's occurred. And in fact, they can't even backwards model, right? So they try to tweak these computer models to take into account sort of the 17 or 18 year, I don't remember exactly what it is, this hiatus in global warming that has occurred. They can't even get the models to mirror the data that has occurred in the past. Now, that's the easiest possible test that you could have. That's like do you have a good sense of direction by following the car in front of you? <laughs> well, you know, I guess kind of. It's a bare minimum. You can at least follow the car in front of you. So I have some experience in computer modeling. Um, I worked on this uh, environmental computer modeling. And computer modeling is not, you know, you can model uh, oh, well, well, what if I get a billion dollars a day in donations? That's my computer model. I don't get to go out and spend that money <laughs> unless, you know, it actually happens, in which case I'll know that fiat currency has hit its last days. So there is this, it, it's become, it's, it's just become this kind of momentum that has occurred. What happens is in general, stuff comes up that is really alarming to people and, 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 Climate change, of course, has been sold as unbelievably terrifying and disastrous and people will drown and society will end. And, you know, the day after tomorrow movie is, you know, that's it. You, that, that's it for human life pretty much as, as a whole. And so planet ending catastrophes tend to get people's attention, or at least they tend to get K-selected people's attention. The R's are just like, wow, looks like a bad day in 
15 years, I'm going to go have sex right now, but, you know, I guess I'll think about it that later and, you know, tomorrow never comes. So you get people's attention with a big fear-mongering situation. And in the past with religion, it was, you're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. And so does that, do I have your, does eternal torture have your attention? <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. And, um, and so what happens is if people say, well, I'm skeptical of that, Pascal's wager kicks in and say, well, the disasters of doing nothing are so intense that we might as well do something. We have to do something because the disasters. And so, you know, originally it was global cooling and then it was global warming. And now it's just climate change, which is kind of a synonym because climate by its very nature is, is going to be changing. And the fact that, um, you know, we're talking about parts per million, the fact that CO2 is plant food and the fact that they haven't been able to predict jack shit. And the fact that all of the popular Here's what's going to happen. You know, wasn't it like in a couple of weeks originally, New York City was supposed to be 12 feet underwater? Uh, I mean, that's, you know, I don't think any climate model predicted that Europe was going to be 12 feet underwater and Muslims, but that's a topic for another time. So there is, you know, skepticism is supposed to be the hallmark of science, right? I think it was Richard Feynman who said that all science is founded upon a skepticism of authority. And this is why they had to remain, they had to rename climate skeptic with climate denier, right? Because denier sounds mentally ill and it also comes into Holocaust denier and so on, right? So they had to, being a climate skeptic, skeptic of climate change, uh, you know, anthropo anthropogenic, anthropogenic, oh, geez, let me try that again. Ah, Man-made <laughs> catastrophic uh, global warming, uh, that is uh, something to be uh, skeptical about. And... Um, we should, we should be skeptical of these things, but unfortunately what's happened is there has been a co-joining of government and science uh, and the remnants of religion that have made a perfect storm of social momentum for the trajectory of this kind of belief. And please understand, everyone, I, I know that there's a, such a thing as a greenhouse, which is where you have higher concentrations of CO2, where things are warmer. And where plants grow more. Like, I, I fully understand that uh, when you add CO2 to a closed system, you're going to end up increasing heat. I mean, no doubt about that. That's beyond anybody's capacity to, to repudiate. It's just that the Earth is not a closed system. Plants eat CO2 and, and produce uh, oxygen and so on, just as human beings eat CO, uh, oxygen and produce CO2 and so on. And so right now, what's happened is governments can use the scientists to frighten the population into surrendering rights. And the scientists can use the government to transfer wealth from the population to the scientists. And this is virtually identical to the situation, you could sort of overlay these two, it's virtually identical to the situation with the priests and the kings. Right? The, the kings said, okay, this is the only religion, and so no competing religions. And... The priest said, in return for having a monopoly, um, being the corporation where there's no competition allowed, they would say the, 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 um, the, the power of the king is legitimized by the God that the king says is the only one true God, coincidentally enough. And so in the modern model, right, the, the, um, the government says that the scientists are legitimate that there is the only one true religion, the, the, the climate, uh, you know, thermageddon or whatever you want to call it, like the, this catastrophic anthropogenic, hey, I did it, global warming scenario. That is the only true religion. And in return, the scientists say, 
that legitimizes expansions in government power. Oh, and thank you very much for the for the money. Wow, that's right. That's, so uh, very eerily, almost the exact same situation. <laughs> oh yeah, history is the same damn thing over and over again, just different yeah. costumes. And this one, you know, it used to be a black frock, and now it's a white lab coat. But it's the same damn mechanic because. The scientists should never, ever be talking about policy, but what rolls out of the scientific community are endless proposals for policy or supportive policy. The scientists could as very easily be using global warming to say, we must end fiat currency, we must end central banking around the world. Because central banking and the continued overprinting of currency and the taking on of national debt is causing a vast overconsumption of nature's scarce resources. And so uh, scientists could very, very easily and with greater justification could be saying this um, catastrophic anthropogenic global warming disaster scenarios should be the central and fundamental and irrefutable argument for ending central banking and returning to a gold standard. Because returning to a gold standard would vastly reduce all of the $20 trillion that the U.S. has almost racked up in uh, debt, not to mention the $180 trillion in unfunded liabilities. It is really, really bad for there to be fiat currency. It stimulates overconsumption. Overconsumption produces CO2 emissions, which is disastrous for the planet. So to save the planet, we must end central banking. That is a five-minute argument that any scientist could make and any scientific group could get behind and which would have a damn sight more likelihood of reducing um, carbon emissions than uh, something like, you know, cap and trade or these you know ridiculous agreements that governments keep getting into, like Kyoto onwards, that they never get anything around to doing except generally jacking up taxes and um, uh, taking over more aspects of, of industry through regulation. Now, have you ever heard of a scientific organization saying, we are deadly concerned about global warming, so we need to stop having governments have the power to print money or borrow? No, no, you're, you're definitely the only one I've heard that from. Right. Now, when you hear the argument, it seems fairly credible, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. It would immediately reduce consumption by the amount of the deficit, at least. And if you wanted to start paying off the debt, it would vastly reduce the amount of spending and therefore consumption in the world, right? And so we clearly need to reduce, the whole point of taxation is to reduce consumption, right? The whole cap and trade thing is stop making a bunch of stuff, stop using uh, coal or, or fossil fuels to produce a bunch of stuff. So... In, in one scenario, the government gets to increase taxes, right? And it gets to regulate business. Now, when you go to a business as a politician, you say, I really want to regulate you. The business suddenly really wants to donate to you. <laughs> and I mean, it's a shakedown. And so the government gets to increase its power, gets to get more donations, gets to make the lobby, the green lobby happy and so on. And so, you know, they don't have to have the smell of bongs and hemp around their offices all day. And so the governments love that sort of shit, right? But if the scientists said, look, the only thing to do is to stop borrowing and, and printing money, what would governments, would governments still be very keen? You start, it's just a mental exercise. I think you get it, right? But just you have to ask yourself, if the scientists tomorrow all came out and said, the enemy of the environment, the enemy of the future, the dry, fundamental driver of catastrophic anthropogenic global warming is central banking, governments must go back on the gold standard, they must never be allowed to borrow or print money ever, ever again. What do you think governments would do? Oh, I mean, they're not even going to talk about it. In fact, they'll no. refute it. Oh, my goodness. 
I mean, of course, I mean, well, governments don't want to give up. That's the fundamental power of governments. You know, since they can no longer throw people directly in stocks uh, or, you know, they don't have a priesthood consigning them to a physical hell after death. They just have to pretend that they're making one up through turning Earth into Jupiter or more likely Venus uh, in the here and now. So, yeah, if what came out of the scientific community was a massive reduction in state power. Every single person with half a brain on the uni- in the universe knows exactly what the government would do with that information, which is shred it and uh, vanish some scientists, <laughs> probably, right? Yeah, and well, when I was talking about my college professors before, I've, I've had about three or four science classes so far. I'm a, I'm a sophomore right now in college. And basically every one, they've, they, they've shown these large, on their PowerPoints, they've shown these large charts and graphs of like CO2, for example, and then you look at the past 20 years or something, and it's way, 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 way higher than the, than the rest of, you know, the past 200 years. And that's usually what they use as, as kind of a fear tactic, I would say. Um, but, but it's interesting. What, you know, what refutes that, I guess? Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know exactly. I mean, I'm certainly no specialist in this. But the questions I would ask is, uh, for instance... Uh, has is the data has the data gone through any post processing? Right? Have they massaged the data, or is this raw data from the weather stations? Yeah. Right? Now, if the and of course it's not, it's not, it's <laughs> yeah. not even close, right? Mm-hmm. So, the first question I would ask is, okay, is it um, is it massaged data? Now, the second thing I would ask is, is the massaging of the data perfectly transparent? Mm. Yeah. Right. So if you're going to massage data, okay. well, there are times when that's legitimate. So if you're going to massage data, do you release the source data and explicate or explain every single one of your manipulations so that they can be independently verified, even by skeptics? Right. Now, they have not a lot. Most climate, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say a lot of climate scientists have not released the source data or have exposed their manipulations. And even when freedom of information requests have been put in whereby they're supposed to, oh dear, the data has vanished, or you know, you do get incomplete sets, or you don't get the full methodology of how it was massaged and so on. Yeah. And that's not that's not a great idea either. The other thing too is even if we accept all of this as true, um Bjorn Lumberg has a great book called Cool It exclamation mark, uh, <laughs> wherein he talks about even if we accept all of this stuff as true uh, is it the number one priority that we should be dealing with uh, pretty much to the exclusion of everything else? And the answer is very clearly no. Uh, Alex Epstein has uh, brought uh, arguments in about the, the the question is, of course, you know, if you are skeptical of this, people think you're anti-science, you hate the planet, you know, all, all the sort of stuff that you would expect from people who have a shaky position. But the question more fundamentally is, if we are going to significantly restrict the use of fossil fuels, if we're going to significantly restrict human action, which produces CO2, how many people are you willing to have die for that? Because it's become a government program insofar as everybody only talks about the downside of not doing something. Nobody talks about the downside of doing something. And that is fundamentally disastrous. Like people on the left say, well, you know, it was really unfair that the government in 2007 was mostly getting advice from people who stood to gain from a bailout. (laughs) Yeah, 
that's kind of unfair because they're only going to talk about the horrors of doing nothing, not the horrors of doing something, which, you know, we're beginning to face now as stocks have had their worst opening year in human history, at least in America. Down about 7% this week. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, what goes up must come down. That's an old Alan Parsons song from a great album called Pyramid, which people should listen to. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Why did I ever buy an album? Anyway, um, but um, so with with climate science, okay, let's say it's all true. Let's say there is this catastrophic anthropogenic global warming and we need to vastly curtail activities which produce CO2. Okay, well, how many people are you willing to have die from that? Because they will. Because they will. And uh, Alex Epstein, who's been on this show uh, twice, uh, has got a great book. The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, where he talks about this, that people will die. And also, how much denuding of forests are you willing to? So let's say that you um, you stop having coal-fired power plants. Of course, the people tend to be against nuclear power as well, and that's sort of a problem. You need power from somewhere, and you know, wind and uh, sun ain't going to do it, because sometimes my kite falls to the ground and I don't get a tan. It's not that complicated. But... Um, you know, so let's say that they don't get power. Well, they still need to cook their food and they still need to heat their home. So that what they're going to do is going to go out and cut down trees and burn them. So how much deforestation are you willing to accept? How many human deaths are you willing to accept from people who aren't going to have the energy they need to sustain? Human beings are currently held aloft by this giant fist of Zeus-like energy mostly produced from carbon-emitting technologies. Human life is literally, we're all held up in this giant cloud of CO2. And if you reduce the CO2, you're going to open up holes in this cloud and lots and lots of millions of people are going to fall to their death. So that's the question. How many lives are you willing to sacrifice for this hypothesis? It hasn't even attained the status of theory yet. It's a hypothesis and it is a hypothesis that's directly in contradiction to the evidence as a whole. So how many human beings are you willing to sacrifice for this hypothesis? And until that equation comes into it, we're not going to have a rational discussion about it. If it is something that science proves 100% or 97% or whatever they say, the number is bogus, but let's say it wasn't, right? 97% of scientists agree on this. Okay. And it's painless to solve the problem. It's going to be good for the economy. It's going to stimulate human creativity in producing energy cells that run off the slowly beating hearts of newborn unicorns or whatever they're going to talk about, right? And so if it's 100% of scientists agree and it's economically productive to fix it, well, who on earth could possibly say no, right? Yeah. I mean, it would make no sense. You'd have to be insane, which is why how they portray people uh, who are skeptical yeah. of this stuff, <laughs> crazy, hate people, hate the planet or whatever, right? However, if the actual costs of reducing carbon emissions is talked about in real terms. You know, and, and rich people and scientists who are getting fairly wealthy off this stuff, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars being spent, um, I think per year now is hundreds of millions of dollars at a minimum spent on this stuff. So people are getting pretty rich, getting a lot of power out of it and all that. So rich people, well, they can live with, you know, my electricity bill has doubled, you know. Al Gore with his house that consumes as much electricity as a space station, he can survive. <laughs> He's made a lot of money off cap and trade. But um, yeah, poor people don't have that flexibility. You know, if the price of wheat doubles, you and I can still buy a loaf of bread, but people in Egypt can't. When the price of e uh, wheat doubled in Egypt, you got the Arab Spring, and Larry Logan had a next bad half decade and forever. So the question is, okay, well, what are the costs? And are the costs worth it? 
are the costs worth it? Because it's always portrayed as scientific certainty and there are no costs. And, I mean, that's, that's automatically a bad argument. Everything in human life has costs and benefits. Everything has costs and benefits. You know, I am unable to climb a tree using my teeth because I'm having this conversation. And earlier today, that really seemed like a smart thing to do. So let me just say it's very good that I'm having this conversation. That way I can still have teeth. So, so people who put it forward like it's a pure certainty and there's no downside, I mean, that's just a, it's a lie. It's a complete lie. It's, it's a man- manipulation. So ask people, okay, well, what's the downside? Well, corporations might lose a little bit of profits. It's like... Uh, oh, yeah, that's always the answer. Yeah. I don't really think all Because as long as your negatives accrue to some hated group in society, nobody cares. You know, if it's Jews in 1930s Germany, corporations are white males in 2016, <laughs> nobody's going to have any problems. <laughs> Good! Good, let's make them suffer more, those pasty-faced, balding bastards. So... Yeah, I mean, those would be sort of my uh, questions. I mean, as far as getting into the science and all of that, you know, I'm willing to concede all of the science. I'm certainly no scientist and I'm no statistician and I'm not about to start going through imaginary data that I can't get a hold of, even with Freedom of Information Acts. But uh, what I am is I know the models aren't science. I know that there's deviations between the models and what is being recorded. And that's enough to give pause to a program which is marching joyfully onwards that can cause the deaths of literally hundreds of millions of people if its goals get implemented. And so, yeah, just, okay, well, how many people are willing to die for your hypothesis? That's, that's my question. And uh, until that question gets asked more regularly, I mean, the psychosis is just going to have to wear itself out. I mean, eventually, eventually there'll be such a divergence that it'll fall apart. Eventually. How, many, how much human capital and human lives get destroyed in the interim? Well... Eventually, they ran out of witches, you know, but we wish that we could learn a little bit more so we didn't have to run out of witches before we stopped the witch hunt. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm, I'm not a scientist either at all. I'm, I'm, I'm going to private equity probably after college. But um, it, it's just all the stuff they're proposing, it's hard to take it 100% with, with all the skepticism and all the um, counter arguments. I mean, versus like gravity exists. There's no there's no credible counterarguments to that, whereas with climate change or global warming, there's so much to go against, you know, the, the ant- global anthropogenic, anthropogenic, you know, horrible climate Ah, change. good. It's not just me. It's <laughs> tough, right? It's like the word judicial when you've had three scotches. <laughs> no, but, but, I mean, you can accept, you know, as I've said before, you can, if, if it's a bad argument, you can accept everything but the last point and still win. Yeah. You can accept absolutely everything that they say and you, you can say, wow, this is really, overconsumption is really terrible. We absolutely should, we should bar governments from having the ability to borrow or print money because, man, does that ever stimulate a lot of ecology-destroying consumption in the here and now. And so you can accept absolutely everything they're saying and then you can provide a solution that is against the whole purpose of why they're saying it, which is to increase government power. Yeah. I mean... Because if the scientists, if the government can't borrow and print money, people who are being taxed, what they're going to do is they're going to start actually demanding value from these scientists, <laughs> other than fear-mongering and government grants, which they're forced to pay for. So when you start to talk about governments not having the power to borrow and print money, a lot of government scientists get a little chill of, oh, free market, actually have to provide value. Uh, that's really, really tough for people who've adapted to a statist environment. I mean, it's like... You know, like it's like taking a freshwater fish and dumping it in the ocean. Yeah. It's water, but they're not going to do well. Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you for that. Can we move on to the next question? Yeah. Yeah. But we'll keep this one brief. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've got 
so I sent in five questions. Do you want me to just do one more question or all four of the other? It depends if they're short, right? I mean, I just, uh, I'll let you pick, pick the one that you think is going to be shortest and we'll see if it happens. And you're welcome to call back in as well, Thomas. Okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, um, I think, okay. One of them that's really interesting is, okay, since the IQ test was created by white men, does that mean it is somehow skewed towards the type of intelligence that white men have? For example, can we really say that the Syrian refugees are not intelligent because of a test created by white men? I got this question from someone I was I, I was arguing w- with uh, about the Syrian refugees, and I, I, I was just I just brought up the fact that that IQ tends to be very low, and uh, she was telling me, "Oh, IQ is not a very good measure." of intelligence mm. because it was created by white men or something like that. It, it, it doesn't adequately measure the intelligence of Middle Eastern men and women and children. No, it's, you know, it's a very valid point, and there's, there is actually some supporting evidence for that. So, mm-hmm. for instance, cell phones were invented by white men, and Syrians can't hear them or speak into them. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's a huge problem. Newton was a white man, and uh, he discovered the principles of gravity, uh, and as, as a result... Uh, Syrian men can float uh, because, of course, gravity was discovered by uh, a white male. And uh, airplanes as well, you know, invented by Orville and Wilbur Wright. And and therefore, uh, when Syrians try to get into airplanes, there's this weird anti-gravity magnetic white privilege force field that pushes them back out. They can't actually get into planes. Of course, if if Muslims couldn't get into planes, our first conversation would have been quite... uh, quite different so um <laughs> you know it's it's uh, it's really really important to understand that whatever is invented by white men doesn't translate at all which is why you know hollywood movies don't play outside of white countries like you you, you can't get anyone interested in a hollywood movie outside of a white country because it's all about you know white privilege and and all that kind of stuff food grown in white countries causes people in non-white countries to burst into flames like you try and eat white bread and the privilege just causes your head to explode it's horrible it's like scanners which is why you can't ever exp- i think you get the point yeah i can keep going mathematics and bridges and right anyway so this uh this idea that um that it is somehow white specific is actually a testable theory and look there's absolutely nothing wrong with somebody bringing this up as a standard of course absolutely nothing wrong with bringing this up as a standard so you're a smart young fellow, if you wished to test this hypothesis that um, the IQ test measures white intelligence, um, how, how would you go about testing that theory? That's very difficult. I guess I would start by testing IQ of all different races of, you know, do and have, have a certain set of people and of different races and test their IQ and see if the white one is the highest. But that can't necessarily work. You have to control for a lot of other stuff. But it would, it would be a start, right? Yes, yes. Now, that, that experiment has been done for almost 100 years now. And what do you think the out, output has been? Uh, I'm not sure. I guess, are, are Asians the highest on the IQ ladder? No. No. Are whites no. the highest? It's the apple juice. No, it's the uh-huh. juice. Uh, the, uh, in, in not the Sephardic Jews who are actually quite significant in population in Israel, mm-hmm. but the Ashkenazi Jews who are the diaspora Jews, the Jews sort of roaming around, the wandering Jews and so on, they have the highest IQ clocking in at about 115. So a full mm-hmm. standard deviation. Okay. 
Deviant Jews. That's the title of the <laughs> full standard deviation above Caucasians is the um, uh, is the highest IQ in any particular population. And if you take out, they're they're not very good at uh, spatial reasoning. Jews, which is why there aren't a lot of Jewish engineers. There are a lot of Jewish writers, of course, because Jews score higher than a standard deviation on verbal skills. A lot of Jewish comedians, a lot of Jewish writers, and so on, right? Why are Jews funny? Because, um, because language skills have a lot to do, logic skills, and so on. Why there's many Jewish philosophies, Jewish physicists, and so on. So, so yeah, Jews score the highest that I know of as a general population, Ashkenazi Jews. Next highest are Asians. Yeah. And by Asians, uh, you know, we're talking about um, uh, China, Japan, Thailand, and so on, not sort of uh, from India and so on. And uh, then next down, we have the whites clocking in at a white bread boring 100. Of course, it's normed around um, whites, so whites are the norm. And uh, next, there's a lot of scales, but next down, sort of Hispanics and uh, 90 or so, and then blacks, uh, American blacks at 85, and then um, uh, Middle Easterners sort of 86, 87, and uh, then further down, you start to get to sub-Saharan blacks clocking in at around 70, and then I think the very lowest, tragically, on the scale is uh, the... Um, uh, the natives in Australia, the Aboriginals in Australia, who clock in, I think, around 66 or 67. And it's also really bad in Somalia as well. I can't remember the number, but it's uh, one reason why we can't call it philosophical anarchy, just because their government collapsed. And so, so th- that, that would be one thing. If, if a white test measured white intelligence, then whites should come out at the top. And they don't. And they don't by quite a bit. Like, there's as much of a gap between the average white and the average Ashkenazi Jew as there is between the average white and the average African-American. It's a standard deviation. So that would be the first test. But it's by far, it's far from the only test to validate this. Can you think of any others? Ooh, let's put oh. you on the spot. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I'm really not sure what I'm trying to think about. So, uh. 68 IQ for Somalia. Yeah. 68. 68. That's one short of a fairly fun sexual position, but not a great IQ for a country as a whole. But anyway. Yeah, so you're you're asking for a another study that would be done to disprove white, you know, white superiority in the IQ tests? Yes. See, I see myself as pretty smart and I cannot think of one. Right. Okay. I will, uh, uh, you know, and I'm not saying I'm any smarter. It's just maybe I've read more about this or whatever, right? So here's here's another test that you could take. So if the white IQ test was skewed for, for white people, then there would be life outcomes for non white people that would not be in accordance with the IQ test. Okay, that that makes sense. Okay. Because IQ is supposed to measure intelligence, and intelligence is supposed to matter in the world, right? Which it generally does in a free market. So what you would say is you would say, if if the IQ test was wrong, then income, which correlates with IQ, so we if the IQ test was wrong, then let's say whites scored the very highest, but then came in around the middle when it came to income then there would be a disparity between the IQ test 
and another measure of intelligence, which could be called income. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and so, so if that was true, then it would mean that the IQ scores are, are skewed towards whites. If they had a worse standard of living, I guess, or income in proportion to their IQ um, score. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Now, um, this experiment has also been run for about 100 years, and it's about the most data of any social experiment on the planet. And I wonder if you can guess the results. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like you just said, you know, it's definitely not, at least from the data, it's not at all skewed towards whites. And I mean... Well, no, it tracks perfectly with IQ. Well, yeah. It tracks perfectly with IQ. Income so IQ, who yeah. makes the most money as a group? The Ashkenazi Jews with their IQ of 115. Who makes the next, the next highest amount of money? It is the Asians with their IQ of 106. Whites come into the middle and then Hispanics and then blacks and then the people who come below the blacks and so on, right? So it, it correlates very, very well, very, very closely with IQ. Income correlates. And again, the more free the market, the, the better it is yeah, for, yeah. for that kind of stuff. 100%. So that's, um, uh, that's another example. Okay. And yeah, so um, do you have time for one last thing? It's pretty short. No, no. No? There's okay. more. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good, That's good. More. This is an important question. Okay, so there are other measures of intelligence other than the IQ test. Yes. So, for instance, uh, the, the graduate or uh, exams to get into, right, the LSATs or the, the SATs or whatever, the, 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 the exams to get into schools, right? So if the IQ test was somehow skewed towards whites, then there would be a disparity between the IQ tests and other tests for intelligence, and the other tests for intelligence would skew more closely to other measures like income or whatever, or criminality, or lack thereof. Higher IQ is lower criminality. And so you, you, IQ tests don't exist in a vacuum. They also exist in correlation to a bunch of other tests that millions of people have taken over the last, well, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people have taken over the last century. And... Um, what happens, of course, is that IQ tests correlate very well with SAT tests, which correlate very well with other more practical measures uh, such as uh, marital stability and uh, income and um, criminality or lack thereof and so on. So it's not just one isolated thing. It's like this RK theory. It's not just one isolated thing. But the RK theory, there's like 60 or more indicators that the RK theory is valid within human beings. IQ tests do not exist in isolation. And there's more, right? So you could also, um, you could set up, um, and, and J. Philip Rushton did this when he went to Africa, I think it was to South Africa, to, to replicate these things. So what he did was he said, okay, let's, let's, let's de-white this thing as much as possible. And uh, I'm not going to make a rhythm joke, that's too easy. So let's de-white this thing as much as possible. So what he did was he, there are, there are IQ tests which you can take, perfectly valid, and there's no language whatsoever. Not a single thing that you have to read. It's all pattern recognition. Various shapes. And you can see some samples of these online. But various shapes and so on. I've taken a bunch of these, right? So, so you can do an IQ test that has nothing to do with language. And you can do it with symbols that the local people are familiar with based upon their own local religions or symbology or whatever. You can... Um, Give them as much as 
time as possible because there's some theories that say, well, you know, um, white parents are very ambitious, so they subject their children to a lot of tasks, so they're more familiar with tasks, so you can give them as much time as humanly possible. There's been another theory which says, well, white people are more motivated to do well at tests, and so what they've said is they've tested people for motivation ahead of time, and they found that Blacks, for instance, are actually slightly more enthusiastic than whites to do the test. And so they, you, you, they say, well, maybe the blacks are, have a lower IQ score because the whites, they're intimidated by the whites. So they, they have, the, the, Rushton went over and he said, okay, we're going to give them as much time as they want. We're going to test for enthusiasm and we're going to have black uh, proctors uh, walking up and down and we're going to use local symbols. We're going to put them in a familiar environment. Like that is not white. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't even know a white person was involved in the test. It was entirely black, uh, given in a black environment with black symbols, no language, enthusiastic students, motivated people and so on. And he went through, he tried to de-white or, or de-culture or denationalize or de-race the test as much as humanly possible. And what did he get? Same results. Exactly the same. <laughs> Wow. Exactly the same. That's pretty It's amazing. like saying that, that, that Asians are shorter because height is a white concept. <laughs> it's like, no, it's a measurement, for God's sakes. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, so, so and there's many more, and you can do more research on this. And, and another thing to do, and, and just very briefly, I know we'll get another question, but another thing to do would be, if, if it was um, biased towards whites, then what you would do is you would take a slice of people who made an, who had an IQ of 110 and you'd measure how successful they were. And um, if it turns out that everyone who's got an IQ of 110 has about the same income, about the same crime rate, about the same marital stability, about the same level of education, about the same level of professionalism in their occupation and so on, if that were the case... In other words, if IQ 110 across different races and cultures all turned out to, to produce pretty much the same outcome in life, then it would not be biased towards whites. It would be an accurate reflection of people who have an IQ of 110 and how well they do. That experiment has also been done for many decades and was brought together by Charles Murray, who's been on the show, and Dick Kernstein, who died shortly before this book came out and therefore hasn't because it's a rational show. Um, called the bell curve, which I'm sure you've heard of. And uh, in the bell curve, they took uh, social indicators and they simply took race out and substituted IQ. And they found that when you normalize for IQ, everything else disappears. IQ really is the only thing that matters, which kind of makes sense in a free society where you're paid according to the value you can provide to people and smarter people can generally provide more value. You know, the, the really tall guy can get the stuff at the top shelf and the, sh and, and the lower shelf. The short guy can only get stuff on the lower shelf. So if you've got to get stuff from shelves, you want the tall guy because he can do the stuff that the shorter guy can do, plus he's tall. So, so and again, I, you could go on and on and you could do this research if you want. But this question of is it somehow a measure of, of whiteness or white specialization, uh, boy, you know, like nobody's ever thought of that before, you know. And the whole reason why this was put into place to begin with was because the military didn't want to put smart people into the trenches. They wanted the human cannon fodder to be differentiated from the people who could provide more value in a war than just the ability to pull a trigger and have their guts blown up. And um, uh, it has um, been, been, been examined six different ways from Sunday. After the bell curve came out, there was a huge controversy because everyone said, oh, it's racist, racist. The American Psychological Association put a bunch of experts researching all the data validating everything. They said, yeah, it's true. It is a tangible measure 
of something real called intelligence. And now that there's better scans and better genetic testing and they can see the white matter and the fMRIs can dig deep into the brain and they can measure response times and so on. Also, IQ correlates to response times, for God's sakes. I mean, that surely a response time is not cultural. Boo! Ah! Oh my God, only white people do that. You go boo to other people and they're like, who? Am I supposed to cry? I don't know. So um, it's been so well validated. The American Psychological Association in the 90s put out a whole paper after they examined all the data and said, yeah, it's not culturally biased. It measures something very real. And it is really different between the races, hugely different between the races. And then, of course, that went down the memory hole because, um, you know, and, and Linda Gottfriedson, ha, huh, the great goddess of reason and IQ ex- explanation. Linda Gottfriedson been on the show. You should check that out as well. We've had... Um, uh, Eric Turkheimer on the show, who was talking about this stuff, uh, James Flynn, uh, Charles Murray, um, uh, even Dr. Kevin Beaver a little bit talked about it. So, um, yeah, but, but this is, people just make up this stuff. Oh, it's culturally biased, just so they can wave away the implications. But uh, uh, that question has been examined so many different ways and always been found wanting. All right, we do one more. Yes, and th- thank you very much for that answer, by the way. Um, just real quick, you know, we have to, we don't have to go on forever about this, but what do you think of government debt being able to go on forever, um, like to 99% of GDP? Because um, I went to a Bernie Sanders rally one time with my friend, who is a big Trump supporter, actually, and um, we 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 just went and talked to the people waiting in line to get in. We we just wanted to talk to them about you know what they believed and gave them counter arguments. So it it was fun. It was a little nerve wracking, but it was a lot of fun. And um, I spoke to a guy who was in line who had a master's in economics. And he was telling me that basically government, the U.S. government debt doesn't really matter and that it can really technically go on to 99% GDP and the government doesn't really have to completely pay it back and you know our credit rating is good enough that we'll never really default. And you know that's it, it, a hard argument to make, to make that, that, it'll never, that it'll never end, that we could just go on, you know, keep borrowing and borrowing. You know what? Fantastic! You know, boy, that that guy, holy crap! Yeah, just tell him to give him your credit card, like just tell him to 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 give you his credit card. You know, wow! You know, if debt can just go on and on, and you never have to pay it off, give me your credit card, give me the pin, and I can go and rack up a huge amount of debt, and you'll be fine. Yeah, but but I I guess what he was saying was that it, it's a government, so a government has different rules for that than right. an individual. Because numbers don't apply to governments. Basically, reality doesn't apply to governments. They can travel through time on unicorns. <laughs> I mean, God. I mean, so d- does he? <laughs> it was an interesting. I, I I don't know what to say to that. The idea that debt can just go on and on and on. Well, sure, because governments can devalue the currency. It's called. A soft default, a hard default is I can't pay the bills. A soft default is I'm printing money and paying off bills with like Zimbabwe style bills. You know, I printed a billion dollar bill and I just, you know, I I can print a a 20, I I can print a trillion dollar bill and I print 20 of these and I've paid off the national debt. (laughs) Economics rules. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, give me a photocopier and, you know, monopoly money that people will accept as real currency. I'm rich. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what, I mean, yeah, okay, he can say debt can go on forever, okay. Is it is it a genuine financial obligation? If it is, yeah. Now, you can ride debt forever if you want, 
like there's people who run up a bunch of money on their credit card bills and what do they do? They just pay the interest, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but governments aren't just paying the interest. Governments are continually adding to this debt, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at some point, at some point, either there are external creditors or internal creditors, right? Like either it's the Fed or, or some internal treasury bill that's being bought by somebody in, inside the government, or there are external creditors either within the country or outside the country. Because in order to borrow, people have to be willing to lend to you. Yeah. And at some point, people say, ah, eh, you know, they're not going to be able to pay it back. And then they stop lending you money. And then what happens? And then... People, I mean, I guess they raise taxes at that point, and that—that's kind of what you what you always talk about with the enslaving, you know, the next generation or a few generations down is that they're going to have to pay all the taxes for you know the spending of the current government. They can't possibly raise enough taxes well <laughs> to deal with the national debt. I mean, it's absolutely impossible. So, even, even if even if it didn't negatively impact people's desire, like if you start raising a lot of taxes on people. You know, the, the, the Beatles wrote a song called The Tax Man. You know, it's, it's one for you. It's one, it's one for me, 19 for you. That's because they were being taxed at 95%. So what did they do? They left the country. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and then Bono, who's all about socialism and social inequality, at least until recently, and, and the government should, should pay for uh, all the third world debt and the government should pay for this or that. I mean, guy left, left, <laughs> he, left the, he left where he was to, to go, I think, to Switzerland or Sweden or some Switzerland, I think it was. So he didn't have to pay as much in taxes. Because, you know, just the fact that you want massive social spending doesn't mean that you actually want to pay taxes. Edmund Wilson, who was an old communist, uh, a communist sympathizer, I think he was, I can't remember, but he wrote a book called To the Finland Station about Lenin's takeover of um, Russia. And uh, he was all for government spending and governments to do this, that and the other. He ended up having to flee the United States because he hadn't paid any income tax in 10 years. And his lawyer said, I can't work this out. You just got to flee. (laughs) <laughs> good job man good job advocating all that government spending and they're not paying a single dime in, in income tax anyway so yeah so they can't they can't raise enough taxes to to pay off yeah, so, you know, uh, all debt yeah what do you mean when when you say um you know that certain generations are going to be in, enslaved basically by the current debt you know what well I mean? um okay it is um but if their taxes get raised then they're going to end up being enslaved because so much of their income is going to be taken away from them. Yes, okay. So there's certainly an increased amount of enslavement that way. If there's a soft default, in other words, if the government just starts printing money, then they're going to be enslaved because their life savings are just going to be robbed from them, right? This happened in the Weimar Republic, as stories of the guy, the guy had saved his whole life for his retirement. And then the day of his retirement, of course, the Deutschmark was being printed into oblivion. And uh, the guy took out his entire life savings and was just able to buy a cup of coffee. One cup of coffee. That was his entire life savings, all just completely stolen from him. That's lack of economic opportunity, lack of ability to plan, uh, and um, Mm -hmm. unbelievable social chaos that comes out of this kind of hyperinflation. Uh, We've done a, uh, I've done a whole series called Fiat Money in France: The Coming Fiscal Fiat Monetary Collapse. There's a whole series you can find on YouTube where I'm reading articles and commenting on them and describing what happened in France when this happened uh, some time ago, and. what is going to, you know, what is going to happen? Um, people are just going to be, their economic opportunities and their savings and their, their incomes are just going to be progressively clawed back and clawed away from them. And that is an increasing amount of enslavement. Uh, 
and to, to the degree to which they may end up completely dependent on the government because nobody's around creating any economic opportunities if inflation is running 1,500% a month, as we've seen in certain other countries throughout history and across the world. So, yeah, I think it's a serious possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Well, well, thank you very much for the call. And, um, Enjoy your weekend. Oh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> and, 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 and by the way, just real quick, um, thanks for uploading so many videos. You know, you're, you do it day after day, and I'm always amazed how you know how you're able to do it. You know, I'm I'm, I'm sure it's it can be very taxing. <laughs> so thank you very much for that. Thank you for working so hard for the cause of human liberty, and uh, thanks for the thanks. call. Thanks. Actually, it's um, it, it's it's a lot easier than thinks. There's actually three of us. I've just I've just screw this working. I'm just cloning myself. So <laughs> um, there's nine mics and three of me because that's about the ratio that we need. So yeah. <laughs> Is it like multiplicity? Are there a couple mics that are pretty dim that we have to tolerate? <laughs> There's one mic with abs. That's the only one I, I oh. interact with. <laughs> All right. Thanks, uh, man. Uh, talk to you soon. And uh, welcome back anytime to finish off those questions. Oh. They're great questions. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks, Bye. Well, thanks, everyone, so much for listening. Always a great pleasure to have these chats with you and yours. Uh, please remember, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. And uh, if you're going to do any shopping on Amazon, fdrurl.com slash Amazon is how you can. Uh, it doesn't cost you anything and helps us out quite a bit. So thanks again for listening. As always so much, have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful day. We'll talk to you soon.